WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Ladies and gentlemen, hello, hi, wow. Thanks for joining us. Very warm welcome. Thank you. Please sit down. Boy. What an exciting show this evening, a special show, live from our studio, the stars of the Airline Pilot Guys show, APG, Captain Jeff and his crew. Ed, have you uh, have you heard of these guys? No? Haven't heard of them? Uh, you probably don't get out much more, do you, after the divorce? No? Okay, well, anyways, listen, fantastic program, really creative producers, I absolutely love it. It's, uh, it's everything aviation, everything aviation, news. Events, interviews, they're not as good as mine, but that's okay. It's their show. They can do whatever they want, I suppose. Ed, can I tell you something, though? I've, I've got to tell you. I have always enjoyed flying, but I am equally amazed at how they know how to fly those things. Poor Captain Jeff, though. I, I do feel bad for him. Poor guy has been shoveling coal on the Mad Dog for 30 years, long enough to contract black lung disease. I'm told he's been doing this for so long that he holds the first printed pilot license and took lessons from the Wright brothers. He's, he's been doing this for so long that the navigational charts he uses were drawn on clay tablets. I've always wanted to be a pilot. Yeah, Ed, do you, know, do you know this? I've always wanted to be a pilot. But do you know what I'd do, though? I'd get on the cabin microphone every few minutes, and I'd just start screaming. Anyways, here they are. Will you please welcome the stars of the Airline Pilot Guy show, Captain Jeff and his crew. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 294. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 310 in the Crown Plaza Hotel in downtown Syracuse, New York. In today's episode, a couple drone incidents. We have uh, some CPDLC action. Uh, Horizon pilots not very happy with their management. More news, your feedback, and the latest Plane Tales installment, the 49ers, part one. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 294 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast, but mostly it's just a place where fellow av geeks like to hang around or hang out with each other each week to uh, talk about stuff in aviation news and answer some questions about aviation and then just you know, joke around and have fun. And helping me do that. Doctor? doctor. We have a doctor here. Doctor? 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 A marathon doctor. runner? Doctor. A skydiver? Doctor. A commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot? Dr. Steph. Oh, hello, Jeff great to be back. I was just wondering how many episodes it's been since I've seen you guys and I've lost track. And I apologize for that, but really excited to be back this week. Looking forward to a great show today. I'm all done with my marathon running for the year, kind of. I got my half marathon next month, but we won't get into that. It's not important. That's nothing. We're here for aviation <laughs> and fun and beer, right? That is, well, yeah. Okay. For most of us. 
All right. Uh, great to see you again, Steph. We missed you. And also joining us from across the pond, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, wide body Airbus captain, professional photographer, and many more things. Captain Nick Anderson. Hi there, Jeff. And hi there, lovely Steph. Great to see you both. um, Jeff, we're going to have to do something about the intro music. After that fantastic piece that you stuck on the front there, it made our intro music sound just a little bit dated. (laughs) Well, we'll have a meeting. (laughs) Good idea. But I loved it. Isn't that good? It sounded very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nice job, by the way. That was uh, Captain Steve, Captain Steve Horn, the uh, gentleman who does the HIG H episodes, how I got here episodes. And so thank you so much, Steve. And he said that he was flying with the first officer and uh, obviously he's good at impressions. And that was an impression of Johnny Carson. Now, many of you are probably too young to remember who Johnny Carson is or was. Uh, but uh, I know that I, I watched him, you know, when I was a young person and as an adult as well, I uh, really miss him. He was a, he was quite a, quite a guy. And, uh, Ed McMahon uh, and the the whole the whole gang. Let's see who is it. Uh, the the uh, trumpet player in the band, um, Doc Severinsen. Uh, good stuff. Great music. Big band and all that kind of stuff. I was gonna say I'm actually so how- actually old enough to have remembered watching the last show. So. Oh, okay. Tells you how long wow. it went on for. So I guess you have to be at least. I think I was ten. Probably in your forties to really remember Johnny Carson and, and really appreciate probably him. Probably so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I remember my parents watching, you know, the show um, when I was a kid and then I started watching it myself. But so, hey, what has been going on with uh, let's see, let's start with Dr. Steph. What what is uh, your excuse for not being with us for the last, I don't know, two, show or two? When was the last show? Have to it was last week. It was last week. Have to remind me. <laughs> I think you might have been. Uh, oh, it you, was Monday. You may have it been in Monday. Chicago. I was in Chicago. Yes. Or was it was Monday. OK. Um, yeah, I was in Chicago. I ran the Chicago Marathon on Sunday, which was just really awesome. Uh, both of my brothers ran it for their first time and did an excellent job. Um, my youngest brother ran a 3.39 in his debut marathon, which is pretty fast. But if you see him, you'd understand why. He's about six foot three and he weighs like 10 pounds more than I do. So he's just tall and lanky and built like a runner and we, we started almost an hour apart. I was about an hour ahead of him starting, and he almost caught me at the end to tell you how fast he ran or how slow I ran. So No, you're pretty quick, Steph. I mean, you don't need to just run one for heaven's sake. Yeah, I did. So Berlin was two weeks before that exactly. Um, so my goal time was to be under four hours and 30 minutes for both of them. And I ran a 427 in Berlin and a 429 in Chicago. So well, congratulations. That was, That's absolutely brilliant. I was very pleased. Yeah. Yeah. And I survived. Um, and your energy levels after those two? I mean, yeah, I mean, I've I've been good. Um, a lot of you know, chicken back McNuggets. To... <laughs> There's been a few episodes of Chicken McNuggets. Um, nothing, nothing crazy. Thanks. So, yeah. Um, now, just getting back into the swing of things at work. Work has been exceptionally busy the past two weeks, and it doesn't really even have that much to do with me taking some time off. It's just we're getting into our busy time of year. You know, here in the U.S. at least, everyone or Many people um, have met their their deductibles on their insurance, and now is the time of year they want to do elective things, which 
the things I do are, the procedures I do are elective things. So everyone now needs to be in before December 31st. And it is October 18th. So it's not a whole lot of time and it just gets really busy. And there's some other administrative stuff that I've been put in charge of recently that I'm not a huge fan of, but um, happy to step up and do my part there. But it just is eating away at my time to do other things. So I don't know. I'll, I'll be here for the AAPG, though. Got to make priorities. So. Oh, she's so good. <laughs> but yeah, actually, the, the day that you recorded... Um, in Chicago, I was in Chicago and I was, um, again, with family and a couple of friends. And um, we went out on the architectural boat tour in Chicago, which I think you've taken, Nick, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've, and I've, I've spent quite a few uh, layovers yeah. in Chicago. I love it. Yeah. So I've, I've taken Didn't it. Didn't Dana I've, say that he, I think Dana. Dana's taken it too. I've, I've taken it many times, but um, I, I always love doing it because you always get a slightly different history from whoever the tour guide is. So you learn different things about different parts of the city. That's and they all regions. just make it up, Steph. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. But it was a gorgeous day. I mean, it was it was probably pushing almost 80 degrees, sunny, not a cloud in the sky. It was it was just spectacular. So, really nice day in Chicago. Good food um, as always, and yeah. So that's what mostly what I've been up to. So. Excellent. Anything else? Um, one other thing, but I'm going to hold off on telling that story for the moment. I think some people okay. in the chat room know about it, but, um, I just want to make sure all the loose ends that might be related to it are tied up and a little teaser for the future. And I, I promise to tell the story. So, uh, okay. Very good. Very good. Captain Nick, uh, how about yourself? You, uh, so, let's see. Last time we were together uh, when you were on layover in Atlanta, um, have you, been out anywhere else since then? Uh, yeah, so I, I came home from Atlanta. Let's see, it was Tuesday last week. I had uh, a couple of days without uh, being vulnerable for another call out, which is sort of the minimum amount of rest. Uh, and then I went back on uh, my call period uh, Friday last week, and they they left me alone for the first day. Uh, and then this, they said they called me out just before I completed my call session. And said, no, no, don't, don't worry, Nick. You don't have to come rushing to the airport. We're just telling you that tomorrow we're going to give you a New York. But it's in the evening, so we couldn't call you out for it since you're on a morning call period. Um, we just want you to pitch up uh, to work and fly to JFK on the uh, the flight uh, that leaves, uh, I don't know, it was about five o'clock or something in the evening UK time. So that gets into JFK quite late. And um, the weather at JFK was forecast to be a bit iffy. So uh, I elected to fly out. Um, and then um, I obviously hadn't been keeping track of these uh, these uh, storms that have been coming across the Atlantic. The you guys are dispatching to us at regular intervals. Thank you very much indeed. You can keep them your side of the Atlantic. We You're really welcome. don't want we don't, them. We don't want them anymore. Yeah, well, to give you our you're, uh, you're saying that they that. didn't originate over here. <laughs> you know, they started uh, somewhere off the coast of Africa. Oh, that's right. true. That's true. Well, when you've done with them, you seem to send them our way. Uh, anyway, uh, my first officer obviously did, and uh, on the way home, he was saying, you know, that storm has got a name now, and it's it's pitching up in the UK. Luckily, um, we had plenty of fuel for it, and it didn't turn out to be as bad as we expected. Um, so uh, that was good. Uh, and then uh, since then, I've had days off um the day i landed um cap now dropped by which was very nice he's busy uh, uh doing interviews so he's obviously got some uh, job offers 
and he was at Gatwick. Now he's, he was just popping by on the way back up to uh, his his house in Wales. So uh, we, uh, I had a couple of hours sleep, and then we had, as you can imagine, quite a, uh, a lovely evening, um, knocking back some very nice uh, uh, West Australian uh, Margaret River um, Cabernet Sauvignon, and um, then went to bed with a headache uh, and woke up feeling like I hadn't actually been to bed for two days, and I had a hangover, say goodbye to Al, and then tried to sleep uh, for the last two days, and I'm not quite recovered yet. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I'm you know, here, glad to hear that Al is doing well, thinking about him a lot, and um, certainly send him our best wishes if you oh, talk yes. to him again. Yeah, I'm sure he will update us as to exactly what's been going on, but uh, I don't want to preempt anything because, uh, you know, he's he's got lots of options, and uh, I'm sure he'll be thinking hard about them. Good. But uh, he has options, so that's that's great. And tomorrow I go back on call. So, again, I could be pitching up anywhere um, in the States that we go to uh, tomorrow or the next day. Uh, and then I've luckily got some time off, so I'm looking forward to that because uh, I, I need a bit of a, uh, a few good nights sleep. And I think I've, I haven't quite got rid of this cold yet. I can't believe it. It's still coming back. Uh, so I need to perhaps get rid of that completely. Excellent, excellent. Well, speaking of uh, people that we know from the U.K., uh, of course, you know, Nick uh, got together for the last show, but uh, just, what was it, two nights ago, I got to meet up with uh, Pilot Pip and Jen Niffer and Pilot Pip's uh, training partner, Tim, and Paul Verhagen, an APG uh, listener from the Cincinnati area. He drove all the way from Cincinnati to Columbus, Ohio, for a quick little meetup at Barley's Tap Room. And I have some audio from that, so let's take a listen. Hey there, we're at uh, Barley's Tap Room, Barley's Brewery, Brew House, there we go, Columbus, Ohio. And uh, I'm meeting up with uh, a distinguished cast of characters here. Uh, most of you listening to the show have heard of. This young lady sitting next to me, she uh, does a, a wonderful blob, blob, <laughs> blog, and a blob, uh, <laughs> Tales from the Terminal, right? And it's, uh, of course, the uh, inimitable Jen Niffer. Hello, everyone. Yeah, we are here having um, some beer, but shh, don't, don't say anything because Jeff's not supposed to be having... Well, I'm going to start it tomorrow. Okay. He's, he's starting it tomorrow. But yeah, we've been having a, a good time. Nice conversation. And I'm going to go ahead and pass it on. You know this person. Uh, hey, gang. Pip here. Um, having fun here. It's nice to see Jeff and the gang and uh, Jen and everyone else. Uh, so I'm here with my colleague Tim over here. I don't know if Tim's going to say anything in a second. He's, he's shaking his head. He's saying, no. <laughs> Well, uh, Tim and I are here doing our, uh, our new racing on the new jet, and we're having a good time so far. I went to the Dayton Air Museum the other day with Jen. She was good enough to, to show me around there. It was a, a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, it's nice to take some time off the training and, and come and have dinner and uh, geek out a bit. So thanks very much. Uh, my name is Paul Verhagen. I drove up uh, from uh, my neck of the woods in uh, southwest Ohio, um, and the invitation of uh, the captain here, and um, I'm just being the proverbial fly on the wall and listening to this all this awesome conversation, and uh, I'm very grateful. 
And also, thanks for paying for dinner. You're certainly welcome. It's uh, all our pleasure. It's always nice meeting people out there in the community, uh, listeners, faithful listeners to the show. And he is so faithful, he actually drove all the way from Cincinnati. We're in Columbus, Ohio. Now, Cincinnati and Columbus, you know, it's two-hour drive. I mean, that's that's some... I don't know. What's the word? That's yeah. That's commitment. That's the word I was looking for. Or committed? Well, no, I'm committed. I should be committed. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, we had a great time here. Just a nice little, small little meetup here at Barley's. Uh, great food, great uh, drink, and great conversation. That's it. Bye. 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 <laughs> so, anyway, we had a great time. And uh, let's see. Also had a little mini meetup um, right before the show. Uh, got into Syracuse. Uh, actually, yesterday ended up in Memphis. No meetups. But uh, today in Syracuse, I got in before noon and uh, met up with a gentleman who lives here in Syracuse. And we had lunch together. So I took a little snippet here. Hey, I am in Syracuse, New York. I just got back from an awesome lunch with... Someone who is part of our APG community, tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, my name is Glenn LeCompte and I uh, live here in Syracuse, New York. I'm a mechanical engineer. Uh, I work as a, a building systems engineer here locally in Syracuse. He saw that I was going to be in Syracuse and said, hey, let's uh, get together uh, next week or whenever. I don't know exactly what it is when you when you uh, contacted me and I said, yeah, great. I said, uh, the only thing is that I may or we may be recording uh, our episode uh, this week. And I thought probably not, but you know, just in case I thought I'd throw that out there. And then sure enough, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do that today in, I don't know, just a couple of hours from now. And I said, but Hey, I get in pretty early. Why don't we do lunch? So came by, Glenn came by and picked me up and we went over to dinosaurs and, uh, I've been to Dinosaurs uh, several times, and it's one of my favorite places to go, and I think it is Glenn's as well. Yeah, it never disappoints, that's for sure. One of my favorites. Yeah, good stuff. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I've lived a lot of my life in the southeastern United States, and they're very serious about barbecue in the south. And, you know, the, I remember the first time that somebody said something about getting barbecue in, like, New York State, upstate New York, and I'm thinking, really? Come on, they they can't make barbecue up here. Well, they can. <laughs> Dinosaurs is awesome. So if you're ever up here in the uh, Syracuse area, Rochester, I guess they have a place now in Buffalo and New York City even. Yeah. Oh, okay. Really, take the time. It's great, uh, great barbecue, great smoke flavor. and uh, But, of course, as I always say, even though the food was good, the drink was good, or I just had water. Um, but uh, the best part of it was uh, the conversation with uh, somebody in the community. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a great privilege to have you, and uh, hopefully next time you're in Syracuse, we'll have a, a larger-scale meetup and uh, get a group of the APG community together. Absolutely. I know that you're out there, people. So, uh, yeah, look at my schedule. If you see that I'm here or wherever uh, and you want to kind of organize a meetup, and go for it. It's always a lot of fun for me, and I think uh, it's, it's a lot of fun for everybody else. All right, that's it. Okay, so that was just literally two and a half, three hours ago. And uh, so I really enjoyed it uh, meeting you, Glenn, and uh, hope the drive down to Ithaca to pick up your daughter worked out well for you. And uh, let's see, starting the trip, uh, day one, 
flight number one. Uh, we were sitting in the cockpit. I just met uh, this first officer that I'm flying with. And, you know, we really even haven't shared the, uh, you know, where do you live? Do you have a family, kids, all the, you know, small talk you do when you first meet um, another crew member. And all of a sudden I hear somebody kind of knock on the door and poke his head in and said, Captain Jeff. And I said, uh, yeah. And he said, hey, I'm uh, I'm a listener. And I could kind of tell in the per- my peripheral vision, my first officer was kind of like whatever he was doing, he had his head down doing something else. And he kind of was starting to go like, what? what's going on here? What, who is this guy? And, uh, so, uh, anyway, this gentleman, uh, from, um, let's see, I think somewhere he lives somewhere in South Carolina, I think. And he was going through Atlanta on the way up South to Carolina. Milwaukee. Woo-hoo. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, no, that's good. Do it again. South Carolina. Woohoo. Yeah, there we go. Uh, James Fadul, uh, was, uh, the, the gentleman in question. And, uh, so talked with him briefly before he went back to, uh, Enjoy our flight up to uh, Milwaukee from Atlanta. And so, James, shout out to you. Nice to meet you. And, yeah, uh, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, you know, people that actually recognize me or my voice on uh, the airplane. But uh, I'm glad that uh, you uh, know my coat was hanging uh, just inside the door of the cockpit and my uh, name tag, my ID card was there and he saw, you know, Captain Jeff Nielsen and then saw the picture and he goes, I think that's the, uh, the dude that does that really awful aviation <laughs> show. No, no, I'm not. So you're the, well, you're the oh, good yeah. one. <laughs> Captain Nick. Yes. <laughs> no, no beard. Uh, although James had a nice beard anyway. Um, so, and then of course, after he walked back, uh, the guy's looking at me like, okay, so what? What just happened there? <laughs> so I had to do the all the whole explaining of the uh, the show. And uh, anyway, so I thought that was kind of cool. And then finally, uh, in my little bit of uh, stuff here at the beginning of the show, uh, Nick Rizzo, um, we uh, when we had a meet up in San Antonio a few weeks back, um, he was uh, one of the APG community members there. And uh, you'll probably remember us talking about that in the recording. And uh, he uh, does something called Just the Tip. And it's uh, part of the uh, X-Planes Junkies. And he recorded some videos. And uh, we'll put a link in the show notes so you can follow him and his uh, great videos on on YouTube and his YouTube channel. And uh, one of the expanded videos that he put out there uh, was this one that I'm going to play a little excerpt of, and you'll see why here in a second. So, um, I planted that one kind of firm. He just landed. Gillespie County, Warrior 65 Charlie Clear, 14 Gillespie. So, a little firmer than I like, but it was on the center line. It took me a split second to get that directional control down because of that firm. And there's no bounce, though, so it wasn't too firm. And, uh,. But anyways, a lot to learn on every landing. That was, without a doubt, a challenging landing. I think for most people, that would have uh, would have been hard to stick that one. Unless, of course, you're Captain Jeff, and then, you know. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. People watching his YouTube channel are probably going, who? Captain what Jeff. is he talking about? It. Captain Jeff. That's okay. Quick Google search. They'll know all about us. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, so thank you, uh, Nick, for, uh, for for that. Appreciate that. But I probably would have 
you know, pounced it on as well. All right. That's all I have uh, for the intro portion of the show. You guys have anything else before we move on to the coffee fund? Oh, just a quick mention of uh, the APG uh, UK meetup at Goodwood, uh, the Goodwood Aerodrome in the south of England, not far from Chichester. And um, we'll be at the uh, it's got the Goodwood Flying Club Cafe. I think it's, that's where it will be happening. Um, I'll be down there from lunchtime onwards. It's uh, uh, Sunday, the 29th uh, of this month. So hoping uh, the weather's good. And I'm uh, looking very f- uh, much forward to meeting Richard Adams, who's going to come down there in the morning, pick me up in his Cessna 172 and take me for a tour of the Isle of Wight, which sounds fabulous. So once we land, uh, I'll be kicking around waiting to meet everyone. I know uh, PTUK is coming down, uh, so we're going to fight for interviews, I think, uh, while we're down there with them and try and get a bit of a... Uh, you know, a bit of a chit-chat going. So hopefully we'll have something for you. Probably not next show because we'll have one more show between now and then, but the show after. I looked up at the calendar and it says Summertime Ends UK. It does. That's right. So the timing will probably... I think it ends at the end of that day. I think that's the day. You guys are still in summer? Yeah, yeah, we are. Actually, I think, tell the truth, I think it ends at 2 a.m. probably on Sunday morning. So everyone that has forgotten to move their watches will probably be in either an hour late or early. Don't ask me which, but I think we fall back, don't we? The clocks go back. Oh, you're talking about this. You're talking about the time zone. Yeah, we go okay. back. I thought you guys back. were still thinking you were in the summer. Well, we, we try and imagine that, Jeff, but it's definitely not summer anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, you know what? Since you mentioned the Goodwood um, meetup, I thought, wait a minute. I think there's something else that I'm supposed to talk about and play. And sure enough, sorry, Dave, he sent this to me, a little bit of uh, audio about an upcoming meetup in Atlanta. Hello, APG community members. This is David Abbey, and I'm leaving this message to invite anyone who's in the Atlanta area on October 27th. We will be having an APG meetup at the Manchester Arms Pub and Restaurant, which is on Virginia Avenue, specifically 1705 Virginia Avenue in the College Park section. And we plan on getting together around 6.30. And I know Captain Jeff and Dispatcher Mike plan on attending. So if you'd like to come, please get in contact with Captain Jeff at Airline Pilot Guy. Or you can send me a tweet at David Abbey, D-A-V-I-D-A-B-B-E-Y. Hope to see many of you there. Take care. All right. Thank you, Dave. I uh, look forward to seeing you when you're down in Atlanta at Manchester Arms Restaurant and Pub. All right. So now I think that that really is everything. And let's move on to the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Hey, the coffee fund, the Java Jive, that's what we play in the background while we're talking about the coffee fund which is the way you can become 
a supporter, a financial supporter of the show. And since the last episode, using the Coffee Fund Classic method, we have Fred, uh, actually, stand by on that one, a recurring payment from Chris Randall. And we got two special um, donations, contributions for our episode 300. So if you'd like to do that, you know, kind of help us uh, with the big party on the 25th of November, um, you're welcome to do that. So thank you to a big thanks to Liz Piper, who is already a Coffee Fund Cadre member. But she sent us a very, very generous contribution, as did Fred Sampson. So thank you guys for sending in the money uh, to help us celebrate the 300 ep- 300th episode. And let's see, another way to become a supporter of the show in a financial way is the Coffee Fund patron method. And you can find out, uh, you can become a patron via Patreon. And again, all that information's at the website, airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. And since the last show, we have Jez B, Jen Niffer, and Chris Miller, all new producers of the Airline Pilot Guys show. So thank you very much for your nice contributions to the show. As we always say, we couldn't do it without your help. Again, information about the Coffee Fund, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. First off, uh, this in the news folder, and the reason why I thought this was um, an interesting article is because of uh, Captain Nick's recent uh, plane tales regarding the uh, uh, this incident uh, in uh, Uruguay, uh, the um, plane crash of the was it a, it was a rugby team, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so it was um, going to be well let me read this it's probably easier to do that do it this way uh, a plane carrying two people taking part in a memorial event to mark the 1972 andes air disaster has crashed in uruguay killing one of them the light piper aircraft crashed in the sea during a beachside anniversary barbecue near monte montevideo on sunday the passenger's body was found in the water on monday the pilot survived and uh, so it goes on to talk about the 72 disaster, a plane carrying an Uruguayan rugby team crashed in the Andes. The survivors were forced to eat those who had been killed in the crash. And if you're interested in learning more about that, um, go back a few episodes to the Plane Tales episode. And soon the exclusive Plane Tales feed. And you can listen to the, that story uh, told so well by Captain Nick. 
Yeah, isn't it tragic, though, Jeff, that they're there to uh, celebrate their survival and yet they have this dreadful accident and someone dies right there on the beach at the barbecue. I can't think of anything worse for them all. Haven't they, haven't they suffered enough in their lives? But I have to say that these, I won't say it's an impromptu, but it's perhaps not as well thought out, uh, a sort of flying tribute. Um it's often the occasion when these hit mishaps occur. So, you know, sometimes it's not appropriate unless you get a professional doing it. It can be exactly what happened. It could be a disaster. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they didn't mention anything about who the pilot was, but um, was that a Piper Cub? I think so. Yeah. It looks like a like, yeah. J3 Cub. Um, yeah. But the I guess the passenger was the one of the doctors for the or for the Chilean rugby team. So not the one that was involved in the crash. So I'm not sure how that plays in, but yeah, he, anyway. he had worked as a doctor to the Chilean rugby yeah. team. Yeah. I don't okay. yeah, know exactly what his connection was, but apparently there was one. Sure. I'm sure there was. Yeah. Makes it even more sad. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a tragic waste as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Moving on. We're going green. We're going green. We're going to take care of the earth. We're going green. Well, apparently we're not going green quickly enough. We're going green. We're going green. We're going to take care of the earth. We're going green. So the uh, headline of this article, Glacial Pace of Advancements in Biofuel Threatens Emissions Targets. With efficiency gains from airframe and engine technology improvements considered insufficient to meet the International Air Transportation Association's IATA uh, 2050 emissions reduction target, the only conceivable way to do so is through the widespread use of biofuels. But concerns over the speed at which sustainable aviation fuels can be certified and supply sufficiently produced leave a question mark over whether the industry will be able to have its have H-A-L-V-E, its carbon dioxide uh, CO2 emissions in the next 33 years. And so uh, I think one of the uh, one of the people that with the big concern is somebody who happens to be uh, a company uh, or working for managing director of fuels at Fulcrum Bioenergy. Uh, so, you know, there's probably some some uh, interest in accelerating the uh, development of biofuels and its use in the uh, airline industry uh, because you know, that's what his company does. But uh, apparently there's no way that they're going to get even close to meeting uh, the uh, uh, the goals, the uh, cutbacks uh, in CO2 emissions with the, the slow pace of developing these biofuels. So uh, more about it in the uh, article here. Anything you guys want to say about that? No, they, they've tried, uh, trialed quite a few uh, different types of fuels um, on various airlines, and they always make a big splash in the headlines, and then it kind of all goes quiet because I think they think they've worked the practicalities uh, or got the costs down enough yet for them to really, you know, go on uh, mainline. So, uh, you know, it's I, I guess it'll be a matter of time, but, uh, you know, it seems to be taking, its, uh, taking a while, doesn't it? Well, I think it's yeah. probably one of those things that, you know, necessity is going to drive more than just having standards and benchmarks and targets. That's all well and good. But as long as there's more 
economical um, alternatives available with the fuels that we have been using, it might be difficult to speed up that process. And you see that not just in aviation, but across the board when it comes to renewable energy sources. But I think we're doing a better job. It's just, as the article says, slow. Yeah, just not fast enough. Things somebody needs to light a fire. Well, no, don't light a fire. Never mind. <laughs> That's not a good thing. Flammable substances. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, they were saying that uh, the projection uh, of um, the global air transport traffic growing four to five percent a year by 2050, the sector could be four times the size it was in 2005. So they're saying uh, they're saying here that that would leave a significant gap to be filled by biofuels. My favorite biofuel, by the way, is are the is the fuel that smells like French fries. Mm. Mm, yes. Love French That's fries. Because nice. yeah. the other way to force everyone into it would be to uh, put more stringent uh, CO2 uh, caps on our ability to uh, fly so that, you know, people have to use a proportion of uh, this type of fuel in there to cut their CO2 emissions. Um, not that the actual burning the fuel doesn't, but it's better than just digging it out of the ground and burning it, I guess. Sure. Well, I think there's, yeah. like you said, I think there's going to have to be financial motivation. So yeah. unless there's but, uh, to do that, involved get, or alternative yeah. sources become too expensive. Um, yeah. yeah. You've got to get worldwide agreement for all the airlines around the world to uh, agree to a CO2 cap. And when's that going to happen? Sadly, I don't think anytime soon. No, no, certainly. Yeah, enjoy the journey, right? Yep. Yeah, and in uh, in how many days? Seven hundred and I've forgotten now. You're going to do your part, aren't you? 694 was the last one I think I saw. Yeah, it's bound to be something like 690 now, I, I would have thought. Let me have a quick check. Uh, so, yeah, 690 today. Woohoo! 690, I won't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're going to meet the Nick. deadline. You're good. Yeah. You're good. <laughs> Excellent. All right, moving on. Pilots at Horizon Air. The Portland, Oregon-based regional subsidiary of Seattle-based Alaska Air Group have publicly blamed Alaska management for service cuts and aircraft deferrals. In a public letter published as a full-page ad in the Seattle Times, the executive committee of Teamsters Local 1224, the Portland affiliate of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters Union, representing Horizons Pilots, said the pilot shortage Alaska management has cited for preemptively canceling hundreds of Horizon flights and deferring deliveries of the Embraer 175 E-175 aircraft is not the full story. While acknowledging the reality of the pilot shortage, which the union leaders say is driven by the time and cost required to become a commercial airline pilot in the U.S., the letter writers accuse Alaska management of failing to seriously prepare for it, imperiling the future of Horizon. The airline has canceled 1,300 flights in September and October combined, citing the pilot shortage. The pilot shortage at Horizon Air was not ex unexpected, the letter stated. And despite what you may have heard, it did not take management at Horizon and Alaska Air Group by surprise. Horizon management has been aware of the pilot shortage since 2012 or earlier, with internal, management, uh, internal managers, external advisors, and union representatives sounding the alarm about the likely impact to Horizon and Alaska Air Group, 
For reasons we do not understand, neither Horizon nor Alaska Air Group took these warnings seriously. And uh, I can kind of understand their frustration because, I mean, how many, you know, from day one on this show, we've been talking about the pending uh, shortage of pilots, uh, qualified pilots to fly, and seemingly watching the airlines not really do anything about it and continue to pay pitiful, you know, wages to the regional pilots. And then finally, you know, that within a, just the last few months to a year, we're seeing a little change in that, that they're realizing, oh, maybe we need to pay these, uh, these guys and gals a little bit more money and give them better benefits so that we can attract some qualified people to fly these airplanes. So maybe they were just planning on, uh, the uh, the airplanes that fly themselves, you know, be becoming a reality reality by now, and they didn't think they needed to worry about it. I don't know. Well, I, I think they've just been very late um, getting their conditions of service uh, and the wages, and uh, they they've just been sticking to that old uh, economic model that has served them so well, and they they're hating the prospect of having to spend more money and actually start recruiting and training guys, uh, and of course it's catching everybody out now. And I know one of the problems is that uh, these carriers compete amongst each or uh, against each other uh, to provide the lowest cost for the mainline carriers uh, so that they'll use them to do their 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 feeding. And uh, they to be competitive, they have to offer the mainline carriers the lowest price per departure or whatever they whatever term they use. And so. Finally, they just came to the point where they couldn't lower it anymore. And they're realizing we can't, you know, we can't actually operate these airplanes anymore, these flights, because we can't find people to fly the airplanes. And it's interesting, I though. I, I thought, and correct me if I'm wrong here, isn't um, Horizon a wholly owned subsidiary of Alaska? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think in other cases where, well, I mean, just from what I've heard from people who were looking for jobs within the past two years at regional carriers, the airlines that were wholly owned subsidiaries had the best package deals in terms of compensation and benefits and whatnot, as opposed to some of the other regionals that were doing more of the competing or flying for different mainline carriers. Um, and so a lot of them ended up, ended up going with those, at least a lot of the people that I knew personally. So I'm just speaking from personal experience because the it was a better deal. So I'm a little surprised that that happened in this case, being a wholly owned subsidiary, they were kind of an outlier there is at least how it, how it seems to me. So, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, if this is going to help at all, but I, you know, it's, it's interesting that they took the move or made the move to publicly, you know, make a, a big deal of the fact that uh, the managers at uh, Alaska and other major carriers have uh, not been really thinking, yeah. you know, ahead and uh, well, planning for this. You know, I don't know about your airline, uh, all the airlines in Australia, um, uh, other than my own, but uh, our managers turn over relatively quickly. Uh, I don't know many guys that have been uh, in uh, high positions in airlines for, say, more than five years or so. Um, and these guys, you know, they have a relatively short time span, and, uh, you know, they don't necessarily learn well enough. They they get in their jobs, they, they do well enough, they bumble through, and then they, they leave to move on to some other outfit. Uh, and I don't think necessarily they, they're in for the long term and they don't pick up on all the, the, the long term trends. I really think a lot of them are just in there to, you know, make a stepping stone moving on to another industry or higher up in the industry. And I really sometimes wonder how well they're doing their jobs. 
Sure. And another good point was brought up actually in our chat room that, um, you know, around the same time, Alaska and Virgin America were going through their kind of merger. So maybe some of those managers that you were talking about or whoever's the, the higher ups may have been more preoccupied with other business affairs. Um, seems a little strange that they would, you know, not be attuned to this, but who knows? You have enough yeah. things going on, enough things on your plate and something gets shortchanged. So. Yeah. yeah, I hope that they are able to work out things. I guess, you know, that as I mentioned, uh, they are finally at most of these regional airlines starting to uh, improve pay considerably. Uh, but again, as I've mentioned before, and we've said and talked about many times before, it may be uh, uh, too much, too little, too late. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's bound to be a, a period of time until people start recognizing this as a, 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 an excellent uh, occupation to get into and one that will fund them well through life and uh, shift across and then think about it and then start doing licenses. That all needs time, uh, you know, so. Yep, time <laughs> and money. So, Captain Nick, uh, you uh, probably routinely use uh, controller pilot data link communications in your flights across the pond? Most certainly do. Well, there's an article here uh, that states uh, Iridium, one of the providers for the Oceanic ATC clearances via CPDLC, uh, apparently has had a little hiccup with uh, their system operation. Uh, according to a service bulletin, uh, aircraft operators using the Iridium satellite service for ATC communications should be aware of an equipment issue that has prompted a ban by a number of oceanic ATC agencies in the last few days. And this was dated on the 12th of October. Right now, Auckland, Anchorage, Oakland, and New York have told operators not to use Iridium for CPDLC and uh, the uh, this is from flightservicebureau.org. Uh, they uh, uh, expect that uh, they're going to be more affected by this, uh, this problem. And it says here, here's what happened. On September 12th, an Alaska Airlines flight had a failure of their CMU, comms management unit, that caused the Iridium connection to stop working. An ATC message was sent to the aircraft but not delivered. On the next flight, the CMU power was reset and corrected the issue, and the pending message was delivered. The CMU did not recognize the message as being old, and so it was presented to the flight crew as a control instruction. Flight Service Bureau understands that this aircraft took the climb instruction and executed the level change, climbing 1,000 feet. Another flight operated by Hawaiian out of Oakland had a similar problem. The aircraft had both Iridium and Inmarsat on board, and during the flight switched over to Inmarsat as the provider. An ATC message was routed via Iridium, but didn't reach the aircraft before the switch. Some 23 hours later, on the next flight, Iridium was activated again, and again the ATC message presented as a live instruction. On this occasion, the, the crew queried the instruction and did not climb. Uh, the problem in simple terms is that if ATC sends a CPDLC message like climb flight level 370, which is obviously only valid for right now, but another crew gets the message hours later, then you have a very high risk of the new crew accepting that and climbing. So uh, for now, it says Iridium has a plan to fix the ground side to not allow older 
messages to be delivered, and they say they are testing it at the moment and expect it uh, a release uh, that fixes it soon. So I thought, wow, that's a major problem. <laughs> that is a major problem, absolutely. Um, but it's not the only problem we've had with CPA DLC, Jeff. Um, over the uh, introduction of it, uh, there have been a significant number of um, misunderstood messages, um, sometimes through the format of the message, sometimes because um, when guys uh, look at the message on the screen, it doesn't show a complete message. There may be some they need to scroll down for and they don't realize that. Sometimes the printer hasn't printed off the complete message and left a, an important bit at the bottom. And a lot of this has been actually, uh, certainly in my experience, uh, involved with the 747s uh, and uh, their method of, of receiving CBDSC, certainly the older 400s. Um, and I think they've got over the majority of that now because it was bedding down. Now, Iridium, I didn't even know what Iridium was other than I don't know, isn't it a rare mineral or something? Anyway, um, so uh, uh, until I listened to uh, Marcus's uh, Omega Tau uh, podcast um, a few days ago when he was talking about uh, how um, transponders and um, that side of uh, radar controlling works, and of course he went well beyond uh, transponders into uh, ADS-B, uh, ADS-C, and CPDLC to a certain extent. And the guy he was talking to, obviously an expert in this field and from uh, an, a company, not uh, not air traffic uh, service, but he obviously he's one of the guys that makes this kind of stuff, mentioned this uh, company called Iridium who had launched uh, – a system of 10 uh, little mini satellites now that are going to provide communications data. And this is the first time I'd ever heard of them because, quite honestly, in the day-to-day -day running of Skipid ALC, um, we don't really uh, choose uh, a company to receive from. All that's done behind the scenes. So I, I didn't even know. And I was pretty sure when, when I heard that conversation, I was like, really, I haven't heard of that. Now, I know Inmarsat, and I'm pretty certain our gear is Inmarsat. But if you'd asked me uh, before I said this, uh, oh, who do you receive your CPDLC signal from? Is it Iridium or Inmarsat? I'd have gone, well, I really don't know for sure. Uh, and it's quite interesting. Now, I will next time I fly, I'll be asking that question to the engineers. Look, uh, who do we use? Just a matter of interest. And how do I find out when I'm on board the aircraft? Where do I get the information to find out who I'm receiving it from at the time? Because certainly on the displays that we use, it's not obvious. It's not like he comes up going, and your data today is provided by Iridium. We don't get that. So it's not as easy as people might think. And it's certainly not something that I would know straight away how to choose between one provider and the other. So I found this quite a fascinating uh, little uh, article. I did too. I, you know, obviously, the Hawaiian um, flights um, have the ability to you know, yeah, it's interesting proactively switch, switch between the two. And that's, I mean, that alone seems like a potential for missing instruction. I mean, it, it was obviously if you switch when one message is being delivered and you miss that in the gap between switching somehow, then, oh, I mean, it sounds, you know, kind of just thinking in simple terms, it's a lot like sending text messages or emails or something like that. You know, if for some reason you don't have signal on your phone or Wi-Fi connection or something and you can't get it sent, sometimes it just puts it away for later. 
And then sometimes the situation changes and you don't want to send that anymore. But I've had instances where those have gone through and the person on the receiving end goes, oh, what's this? And they think it's something current. So, I mean, you really can see how that, that could happen. So. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, we've had multiple delivery systems uh, for quite a while. So uh, we can get it through HF, through VHF, and through right. SATCOM. So, uh, and that again happens behind the scenes. We just turn them all on the data, and then the, the box of tricks decides, uh, you know, who's the cheapest and best way of providing it, because obviously the most expensive is usually the satellite, uh, and the uh, less, least reliable is usually the HF. Um, but over the middle of the Atlantic, almost certainly it's going to go to satellite so it can get a decent response rate, I suspect. But uh, again, we don't really know how that works. It's a bit like your phone. Your phone works or it doesn't work. Uh, you can probably tell perhaps which provider it is on because you can see it at the top of the screen. We don't have that equivalent. Uh, at least certainly on my aircraft, other aircraft may. But yeah. there you go. I think Iridium, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, is uh, has been in the satellite telephone business for quite some time. Isn't that the company that uh, introduced maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, one of those portable satellite phones that you could, very expensive. Oh, maybe. Like <laughs> I in, think I remember yeah. hearing that uh, name. To like the top of a mountain somewhere and have yeah. signal, maybe. Yep. Yeah, that rings a bell because um, uh, the uh, the Town podcast were talking about um, Iridium be able to provide very low-level satellites that can give a strong signal to a weak receiver, which would be like a sat phone. Whereas Inmarsat use uh, they their satellites are geostationary and they're a long way out because you have to be to be in a geostationary orbit um, as opposed to a low Earth orbit that many of the communication satellites work. So that w might be the reason that they were, they're in that communications environment. Now they're turning their hands to aircraft communication as well. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, the, you know, what hit the fan uh, at Iridium when all these things started happening, they're going, ah, oh, somebody quit Quick that to fix that code. <laughs> yeah, I mean because the uh, the error um, acceptable acceptable error rate for this sort of a message has to be extremely low. So it has to be a very rare occurrence, and to have two in a relatively short time, yeah, that's not good. Not good at all. Speaking of not good, Captain I think they're in my room. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll I, I them. saw them. I saw them. <laughs> Did you in the yeah, background? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Housekeeping of coming with the Hoover. <laughs> <sighs> Let's see. Um, the National Transportation Safety Board has announced that it is still investigating the collision between a recreational drone and an Army UH-60 helicopter which took place September 21st in New York. The NTSB is an independent federal. Oh, we know who the NTSB is. Uh, while there has been several initially believable reports of drone collisions in the last year, no previous reports have been proven true. Many, in fact, have proven otherwise after further investigation. A widely reported near miss at Heathrow was later determined to have been floating debris like a plastic bag. A report from Australia which showed significant wing damage to a small sport aircraft, initially called a drone collision, was later found to be a collision with a large bat. 
Yeah, I guess the flying kind, you know, the baseball, not baseball, not, not a baseball guy. Someone did like, yeah. you know, hit a home run and then launch their bat off. Into- <laughs> <laughs> a very strong person. Yeah. This time, however, hard evidence, including pieces of a DJI drone were found. And apparently the drone operator has also been located. Uh, at approximately 7.20 p.m. September 21st, the drone or unmanned aerial vehicle and the helicopter collided. The Army helicopter sustained damage to its main rotor blade, window frame, and transmission deck. A motor and arm from a small drone, identified as a G- DJI Phantom IV, were recovered from the helicopter. In the following days, investigators were able to identify and subsequently interview the drone operator. The drone operator also provided flight data logs for the incident flight. And they're saying right now it's unclear if any FAA regulations were broken by the drone operator. The NTSB says that investigators are reviewing air traffic control radar data, flight data from the helicopter, the flight data logs provided by the drone operator and FAA airspace and temporary flight restriction documents. So I guess the drone operators are, uh, the, the TFRs are applicable to them as well. So somebody's yeah. going to. Yes. And, well, yeah. and, and then there's other regulations for drone operators too, such as, you know, the distance that you have to be away from an airport and height and all of that with, with, at which you can fly. So. Mind you, there's pretty easy uh, apps uh, out there to uh, display to you uh, where these TFRs and where uh, restrictions are applied to drone flying. Um, Mm -hmm. So all you do is put one on your phone before you get airborne and check that the area you're standing and tending to fly is not part of that. Um, So uh, I'm interesting because uh, I I don't know what height these uh, black ox tend to fly at, but in the UK, you can fly your drone legally up to 400 feet, as long as you're not in, you know, one of those restricted areas. Uh, mm-hmm. Perhaps there is a possibility for these helicopters to be uh, below 400 feet, as they would be in the UK. I got plenty of uh, Chinooks and uh, Pumas flying around my house um, at quite low level. Um, and uh, if I was flying my drone perfectly legally at 400 feet, I might not necessarily see one of these guys coming and they could take out my drone, which would worry me because that's obviously a problem. Uh, so I think the technology with drones is going to have to uh, change. In fact, that was, again, another discussion that Marcus was having with this expert, saying what kind of transponders can you put onto uh, little drones so that uh, – they um, it can be spotted and avoided by aircraft. So exactly, I mean, it makes more sense to do it that way than perhaps the other way around. You know, yeah, because I, I think the drone the drones aren't necessarily that maneuverable, whereas correct. an aircraft can climb a couple hundred feet quite quickly. It's got a lot more energy, but exactly. it sounds like the uh, drone operator is being very cooperative, um, well, and perhaps yeah. maybe so because he thought he was. He or she were, right. was operating yeah. it in the right, yeah. So yeah. we'll have to wait and see what the uh, final report is on, on that. Um, and uh, here's another drone incident um, on the 16th of October, which is, what, two days ago. Uh, Canada's transport minister has confirmed that a small passenger aircraft struck a drone while on approach to Quebec City on 12 October. Uh, though investigators have released few details, the incident, if true, could prove notable because previous incidents of suspected impacts between drones and commercial aircraft have turned out false. On October 
12, 2017, a Skyjet flight was struck by a drone while inbound to Jean Lesage. How'd I do? Uh, International uh, Airport in Quebec City. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's Jean. Jean Lesage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you. Where's the buzzer? No. Uh, buzzer is right here. Nope. That's not a touchscreen. <laughs> um, let's see. <laughs> Uh, Canadian Transport uh, Minister Mark Garneau says in a statement released by Transport Canada on the 15th of October, this is the first time a drone has hit a commercial aircraft in Canada, and I am extremely relieved that the aircraft only sustained minor damage and was able to land safely. The drone hit the nose of the aircraft, which was a Beechcraft King Air A100, operated by charter company Skyjet Aviation, according to Transport Canada's online incident database. Transport Canada has since told Flight Global that the King Air's pilots reported the incident. By the way, this is from FlightGlobal.com. The pilot of a Skyjet passenger aircraft reported being hit on the left wing by a bright yellow drone. Transport Canada did not clarify if investigators recovered other evidence such as drone wreckage. The pilot said the drone had dimensions of about 0.4 by 0.1 meters, which is about 16 by 4 inches, and the collision happened about between 1,500 feet and 1,700 feet as the aircraft was on final approach to Quebec City. Those figures differ slightly from those in the agency's incident database, which says the collision occurred at 2,400 feet. The database says the aircraft was about 6.1 nautical miles from the runway at the time of impact. The plane sustained minor damage but landed safely, and no one was injured. So this might be the the first confirmed commercial uh incident of a drone aircraft drone collision seems like yeah. oddly specific dimensions that they were able to give for the uh yeah they gave 16 by 4 and, you know i mean mm. you're past like a balloon in the sky or something else as you're go- and you just see it as it goes by like yeah. there's no way to measure at least for me i mean unless they saw it from a long way out and still managed to continue on and hit it that just seems no, strange. I, I guess if you've just got to give it a dimension. Yeah, that, they were probably just really go, Well, it was know. just smaller than half a meter. So what do we put point for? Yeah, that'll work. That'll work. <laughs> Steph, exactly. don't, don't you know that men are very good at estimating? <laughs> that's that's like, that's three 10 inches. That's six, yeah. uh, whatever. Perfect. But you bam. All right. Exactly. No, yeah. isn't it interesting? We've, we've been going on and on and on about the potential of having drone incidents, and now we've had two in a matter of a couple of months. So, yep, and I think it's going to two. accelerate. Exactly right. Yep. Finally coming to roost, yep. I mean, as they how say. long have we been talking about? Yeah. A long yes. time. This so when it finally happened, we went, yes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we didn't do that. I went, yeah, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, but oh, I well. mean, uh, we've only had two minor ones so far with a few scratches and dents and bumps. Uh, um, we're all kind of, we don't want it to happen, but it's going to happen. And one's going to come through a windshield at some point. And yep. uh, if it causes an incident, then whoever the drone operators are are going to be facing a manslaughter charge, I'm sure. Hmm. Well, hope it doesn't come to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a very, very recent little uh, article I thought I'd throw in the news folder. Um, it was sent as um, feedback from two of our APGers, one Brett and the other Brian. Uh, and they both refer to, uh, as we know, Air Berlin 
as uh, airlines shutting down. And uh, I guess one of the, if not the last flight, one of the last flights um, going into Air Berlin, flying into Dusseldorf, um, the captain did a nice little flyby. Of course, the the uh, the headline says passengers scream in terror as pilot performs incredibly low stunt. I mean, I was really expecting to see something just amazing in the uh, video, but uh, I mean, it was still, you know, it was pretty cool, but it, it wasn't really that low. These passengers and never watched Top Gun. That's just my question. Like, I probably not. Right. Well, certainly reporters so, never have. Uh, yes. So here's here's the uh, and this is from the Mirror. Uh, co. uk, uh, and this is the pilot performs very dangerous flyby with 200 passengers on board. Let me play a little bit of that uh, audio for you. What's Marty? Was macht, was macht die? Der startet durch. <laughs> If you change your Der television, you'll watch your channel. Yeah. Well, that was a screaming in terror, I guess. Now, this is this is the actual control tower. And then they put... Okay, I'm going to stop this one. The, this is a YouTube video from the tower cab at Dusseldorf. And you can hear, you know, clapping as they're coming into land. And then somebody decided to, to overlay that with some audio on board the airplane of the captain making a PA. And the first one, of course, is in German. And then at some point he starts uh, the same uh, PA in English. And then it just gets cut off. So um, let me play the actual YouTube video again. This is uh, from the vantage point of the tower cab at Dusseldorf. I don't think that they were terrified, actually. We'll take a listen here. Kind of quiet up there. It's on short final. Landing lights on. Looks like a beautiful day in Dusseldorf. I think that's what he just said, too. I really don't know. Your okay. German is excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Coming in over the approach end. Oh, that's too old. <laughs> oh, terror. Oh, wait, no, they're laughing. Okay, they're coming by. Kind of a beam, the tower. Kind of a low approach. Gear hanging down. Now they make a nice, easy left turn. Nice little left bank. Nothing dangerous looking to me. Looks kind of cool, actually. Kind of in slow motion. It's an A330. <laughs> and they're applauding. I don't think they were that upset, do you? Doesn't sound like terror or anger to me. So No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, but I did see somebody said something. Maybe I saw it in tw on Twitter that uh, some agency is investigating. Yeah, I saw the that maneuver. That mm -hmm. Come on, <laughs> God. oh boy. Anyway, guess just we'll have to wait I'd, for uh, the results of the investigation. Yes, I'm sure it's going to be very serious. Yeah, but I think as an Air Berlin pilot, the last thing you actually want to have chasing you around, and while you're trying to get a new job is uh, the German uh, aviation authorities uh, threatening to pull your license. So 
Uh, yeah, it's a lovely idea. I think it, and I think it was, was probably perfectly safe. He looked like he did about a 30 degree angle of bank turn. It started a couple hundred feet and he uh, did a sort of a nine degree turn around the tower. So, uh, anything dangerous? No. Was it wise? No. No. But I don't know, you know, we really don't know. Maybe that had been approved. Maybe that was a maneuver that. I don't know. Maybe yeah, not. I don't know if he had the permission of all his passengers, though. <laughs> These things are often yeah. approved, but you often need to have an empty airplane. Well, that's true. I forgot, <laughs> forgot about the air, fact that there are 200 passengers on board. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, oh, well, yeah, he might have some splaining to do, maybe. Yeah, yes. Just a little. Yes. But, uh, I mean, it's not like that uh, Cathay guy who picked up uh, an aircraft from Seattle, was it? Triple uh, Seven and... Uh, uh, what was a very traditional thing to uh, do a very low pass over the runway uh, and then a steep climb out. And, um, of course, someone put it on uh, YouTube and uh, the authorities went mad because actually that was extremely low without any gear down. Uh, and although it had no passages on, and uh, I think everyone did it, um, you know, he was the guy that was eventually caught, and I, mm -hmm. I think he was suspended. He may have even been demoted. I don't know. Well, main man Mike is saying in about 690 days, we hear that uh, Nick is planning a 1G roll over Heathrow. That'd be interesting. Now, uh, I'll just tell you, Mike, uh, on my very last day uh, with my first squadron, I had built up such a reputation that, uh, you know, when you do your last trip on a squadron and get posted, you usually do a beat up at the airfield. Uh, I landed uh, on my planning my last trip on my last but one trip. I landed and everyone met me with champagne and, you know, blah, 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 and I said, what? Uh, this isn't my last trip. My last trip's, you know, tomorrow. And I've got this big plan. Oh, no, you don't. This is your last trip. So they <laughs> caught me out. They wouldn't actually let me do a last trip They because uh, the, the boss was a bit worried I was going to, you know, do something silly. Ah. So there you go. So you had a reputation yeah. for doing no some. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a long time ago, Miel. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a little defensive to me. Yeah, it was a little. <laughs> yeah. All right. Interesting. I can't wait. 690 days. The, the skies will be safe again. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd quite like to carry on flying gliders and things. I don't want to have my license oh, completely great. pulled. Great. All right. Time for the best part of the show. Your feedback. Captain. Incoming message. Uh, let's start with Len on Lantau. Or Lantau. Is it Lantau? Lantau. Do I say yes. that every time? Yeah, okay, right. Lantau. Yeah, perfect. Uh, hi, APG crew and community. It's Len on Lantau. First of all, my thoughts and best wishes for our colleagues at Monarch. Many of us have also been affected by bankruptcy and know what it means, uh, not just for the employees, but also their families and communities. Uh, exactly right. Thank you, Len. Yeah. Bit of excitement in the neighborhood just now, as there was a fire on the apron at HKG, the, the new Hong Kong airport. I guess it's not so new anymore. Apparently a ULD, which is, what does that stand for? Some kind of a load uh, device? Universal. Um, universal load device. Could be. Okay, somebody look Where's that up. Where's my Murek? Burst. Then we spend the next 15 minutes talking about ULDs. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. Burst. <laughs> burst into flames you know, during loading. 
<laughs> more than you wanted to know. Way more. Uh, anyway, let me start that sentence over. Apparently, a ULD burst into flames during loading, unloading operations. Some mobile videos from the ramp are circulating. I've attached a screenshot. I don't know if I'd want to be that close. And then he sent a little a picture of this. And, of course, uh, I think some subsequent stories from when he sent this in were saying that the actual container had not actually been on the airplane. It was off the airplane on the uh, whatever the device is that loads. What, what do they call that thing? Uh, Package loader. Cargo loader. Yeah. Cargo right. loader. loader. Okay. ULD yeah. is unit load device. Yep. Unit load exactly right, device. I was beaten there by both Pilot Nick and Lane Street. Yeah. Ah, I had it before okay. them too, but maybe not because they're a, bit, a little bit delayed. So they probably beat well, me to it as well. Two thirds of it right, but not the first word. Oh, well. Anyway, uh, so I'm not sure exactly... What was in there? I'm wondering if it was. Does anybody know? Was that like no, lithium ion that, batteries yeah. or something? No, that's <laughs> kind of what we're all assuming, I think, because it looks pretty vicious yeah. fire. Yeah, it does. Uh, which I think we're all thanking uh, the Lord, he's certainly uh, the operator is, that it didn't happen a few minutes later when it was sitting in the cargo hold. Exactly. It, it reminds me of uh, there was a, a, a heavy, a wide body. Uh, one of the Middle Eastern carriers at uh, Orlando uh, several months ago, or maybe even more than a year ago now that uh, I remember kind of the same thing happened at Conum Fire. This is not uh, not encouraging for those of us who fly these things or you who out there who are flying as passengers on them. It's wow. not encouraging for anybody. Ivan Marks uh, in the chat room says his friend was sitting left seat on that 777 while it was happening. Wow. Mm. So what happened? Yeah, I guess you can't say. We expect yeah. the insider information there. Yes, you want the inside story. Feedback. Guy.com. <laughs> Thank you. Come on, come on, Ivan. Fess up. What did you do? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Does someone not like this guy? Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway, we'll we'll keep our eyes uh, peeled uh, on the uh, chat room. Aircraft was it not? I don't know. Was um, I suspect oh, I that forget. Ivan yeah, uh, might know more too. than us, but. Uh, he says, I think the loader caught fire. Okay. So it wasn't actually the ULD, but it was actually the loader. Well, I don't know. I, ah. I saw other photographs of this, and uh, yeah, I thought it was a pallet. But no packs. No passengers. Okay. Oh, the cargo caught fire after the loader. Oh, okay. Interesting. Ah, there you go. Wow. Well, See, if we, you can find out uh, and let us know the complete story, Ivan, we'd be very interested in that. Oh, it, it was, was a passenger Yeah, it was flight. an American Airlines. If I remember, it was an American Airlines um, 777. Um, ah. but I guess there were no passengers on the flight when it occurred. Ah, so. good thing. Good thing. Yeah. I don't think it did any damage to the airplane, though, from what I remember reading about this. So that's good. Right, it's just, they just polished it out. Yeah. Just took some soda water or something on it. Cargo door insulation got melted. Ooh. Oh, well, I yeah. guess it did, did get damaged. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Ivan, for yeah, yeah. that Good info. Good to have you on the chat in the chat room. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, thank you, Len, on Lantau for sending that in. Um, now, Nick, you've met this gentleman, Jan, in 
the Northern California meetup that you had. Oh, lovely guy. And what's more, I've been in touch with him because I'm doing a couple of San Francisco flights uh, in November. And Jan is going to take me around his unit, his highway, California Highway Patrol unit, and we might go flying. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah, that'd be so you need cool. To go to San Francisco. Yeah, you do. Well, I got to fly with Fred Sampson. (laughs) (laughs) Much more exciting. He's going to, he might give me a baseball hat with his unit logo on. That would be very cool. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear about that. Jealous. Okay. Here is (laughs) a, there there was no jealousy. I need it from either of us there. We're we're totally fine. That's cool. We're so happy for you. We're so happy for you, Nick. Okay. All right. Anyway, let's, I think it's time now for Jan to, uh, to, to move on with Jan's feedback, because that's why he sent it in. He says, hi, Jeff and crew. Here is a verbal account of my experience with the Atlas Peak fire in Napa this past week. Let me know if you received it. Jan, I received it. Uh, and feel free to mention I fly for the California Highway Patrol. The aircraft we fly is a Gyps Aero Airvan GA8. But I like the catchphrase Gipper you guys have used. Yes, the uh, we're calling it now the Gipper. <laughs> yes, because we can't think of his proper name. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so uh, he sent us some audio feedback. You guys want to hear it? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, soon to be Captain Dana, and Dr. Steph, and all APG listeners. Hope all of you are doing really well. Jan the Man here from Napa, California. Oh, I've had an interesting week. I'm sure as all of you have been watching the news, we've had a uh, bit of a firestorm out here uh, in multiple locations, starting Napa County, uh, Sonoma County, and Solano County. Um, Today is um, seven days, almost uh, eight days since the uh, fire began. So I wanted to kind of give you our... um, you know, aviation account of how uh, we were involved in this fire and kind of uh, give you a, maybe a different point of view that uh, maybe you haven't heard yet. So on the night of the fire um, began uh, October 8th, uh, right around 2200 hours, my partner and I were over a call over the city of Vallejo, which um, as the crow flies at about a five minute flight to where the origin of what is known as the Atlas Fire which took place in the hills above Napa, began. Um, We were just uh, coming out of a uh, left-hand orbit, because I only make left-hand orbits. And uh, I looked up to the north, and I saw a faint light uh, kind of in the black hillside, which, um, you know, we're trained observers. That's what we do. And it looked a little out of the ordinary, so I decided that uh, we ought to go up and take a look at it. So I told my flight officer, uh, Todd, in the back, that uh, we were going to head up north, and he uh, trained the camera up there. Um, The camera is equipped with an infrared um, device, so we were able to see that there was indeed some sort of hot spot there. Uh, Once we arrived overhead, uh, that very small, faint, flickering light had turned into um, approximately somewhere in the neighborhood about uh, 40 to 100 acres. with winds ranging from 50 to 70 miles an hour coming across the ridgeline. That ridgeline is uh, probably about 1,500 to 2,000 feet um, uh, MSL, and we were at uh, about uh, 8,500 feet by the time uh, we'd gotten to the call. 
um, just because the winds were so turbulent coming over the hills, I decided that having a little bit of altitude between me and the ground was a good idea. So as we began to uh, to orbit this uh, this monster of a fire that was growing at a pace that I just could not believe, um, we got on the radio and started a, a notifying the appropriate uh, authorities, in this case Napa County Fire, which uh, dispatches for CAL FIRE for um, this portion of Napa County, and uh, started getting people up here not to fight the fire, but to start evacuating people because the fire began you know, at 10 o'clock at night when people are bedding down and getting ready to go to sleep. And this was definitely going to catch many people off guard. Um, so as we started orbiting, I was already seeing structures that were completely engulfed um, in flames uh, in the literally in the five minutes that we had proceeded to this fire. It was moving faster than anything I've ever seen. Uh, you know, I was uh, around when the Oakland Hills fire back in 1991 took place, and that was kind of the same scenario. It was just so fast moving and so overcoming that, you know, structures were just mowed down, um, you know, so quickly. Uh, at the time, our helicopter, which is equipped for doing rescue, um, was down in Oakland, which is about 20 miles south of, of Napa. Uh, I pulled them up on the radio and I said, you need to get up here immediately. I know there's going to be some work for you to do. Um, meanwhile, while they were en route, I just continued to tell the fire department the roads that were affected, the houses that were affected. We put out addresses and we did everything we could. It was a, a bit of a helpless feeling being, you know, 9,000 feet above this fire and not able to help a soul other than, you know, being super verbal about it and, and trying to put, you know, latitude and longitudes out so that the fire department would have an idea of the scope and breadth of the fire that they were going to be uh, coming upon. So uh, as the night proceeded, um, you know, of course, I, I don't have an endless supply of fuel. So the helicopter arrived. They began uh, a rescue mission that lasted all night long. Um, they pulled um, in total, uh, I believe the last number I heard was 46 people um, out of the fire, um, which is amazing. Um, they flew to the edge and would get to homes as, as quickly as they could. Um, just, you know, nonstop work in some of the most horrendous conditions possible, uh, talking to the helicopter pilot who flew that mission all night. He said he was dealing with, you know, winds anywhere from 50 to 75 miles an hour, um, you know, with, you know, 50 to 100 foot down and updrafts. Um, so you know, maxing out the collective on the helicopter to keep it aloft while maxing, you know, down collective to keep themselves from climbing. So it was just, it was a, it was amazing feat on their end. And uh, I, I, I had to return for fuel on the way back. Um, I experienced probably the most severe turbulence I've ever felt in a light aircraft. Um, you know, and I don't use moderate to severe turbulence lightly because I know, I know how pilots are about that. And I, I was locked to lock, 60 degree banks, basically out of control, trying to get back to the airport. So uh, we did make it back safely. Um, when I landed on a runway 36 left at Napa, I had a, uh, a ground speed of, of about 30 knots. We had a, about a 40 to 45 knot wind off the nose, um, which 
for here is just unheard of. I mean, we get some winds, but it was, you know, out of the north. But this the fire was creating its own um, own weather at that point. So we, uh, at that point, I was I was done flying for the night. Um, we did take one more flight after that um, because we wanted to take someone else to actually on view this fire uh, back up and had to depart IFR uh, in the smoke. We had, uh, the smoke was so thick, they were calling three miles, but uh, I opted to do an IFR departure and it was a good thing because we didn't break out of the smoke until we were at uh, 4,700 feet and 10 miles south of the airport. So yeah, the, the smoke created by this uh, firestorm was just uh, incredible. So, uh, yeah, we went up again and um, fought through some not quite as bad turbulence. I got smart this time and did not descend as much until I was way south of, uh, of the fire. Um, so it wasn't quite as bad. Uh, later in the evening, we ended up getting in a patrol car and driving down to the fire itself. Um, you know, for those of you who don't know, I work for a local uh, state law enforcement agency. And so I started going door to door, getting people to evacuate and in, in the evacuation zone. We ended up putting out a couple spot fires and um, then we came back to the airport to stand by to possibly fly again. Uh, the helicopter continued to work through the night. Um, those guys ended up flying, I think, uh, seven hours, um, most of which was spent in some of the most horrendous flying conditions uh, that they've ever been in. Um, yeah, so um, kudos to the, you know, the fire crews, the, the police crews uh, that, that were on this fire from, from the get-go. Um, it's been a one-week process. The fire is now 65% contained, at least the Atlas fire in Napa. The fires up in Sonoma, uh, that was a whole... Another scenario, the one that uh, ended up affecting the city of Santa Rosa, uh, that that swept off of the mountain under the same force of north winds and took out entire neighborhoods um, again while they slept um, with literally no ability for firefighting crews to fight the fire. It was just uh, a rescue mission uh, in the beginning. So uh, it was... Something that uh, in my, you know, nearly 30 years being involved with emergency medical services and, and emergency services in general that I've had to deal with, um, really amazing event. And I wanted to just share kind of our, our side of things. So um, uh, I, that's it. Um, if you guys had any questions for me, I'm certainly open to answering those. And uh, these guys know how to get me on, uh, on Twitter at JanTheMan113. So uh, just to keep in touch, and uh, thanks for the show again, guys. You guys are doing an awesome job, and uh, hope this recording is not too long and it actually works. Um, cheers, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks very much. Not too long at all. Fascinating story, Jan. Uh, Jan the man. You are the man. <laughs> wow. For sure. Absolutely. It did not sound pleasant. No. No, not at all. Uh, but it's nice to hear a firsthand account. Uh, especially from somebody we know. Uh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, and, you know it's, it's crazy to hear about all this stuff, but it's all, I mean, for us at least, uh, you know, being on the other side of the country, it's just all in the news and you see pictures which are, uh, you know, just, it looks awful, but you really don't get that first person account of it just hearing things on the news. So thank you so much for sending that in and, and sharing that side of things, especially from an aviation perspective too. It's great. 
If you want to hear more, by the way, he said uh, he sent me another message. Also wanted to direct listeners to the Aviation News Talk podcast. Max Trescott uh, interviewed him for his show. Uh, he said this morning, and I think it was like yesterday when he uh, sent this. And I uh, got a little, uh, in fact, Max on his Aviation News Talk podcast started out this episode with this. All told, it was roughly 50 people that we ended up, that our helicopter crews ended up pulling out that evening. And the account of the conditions down there, uh, as far as an aviator goes, were some of the worst that I've ever heard of. I was getting bumped around up there as it was, but not nearly like these guys were flying into basically hurricane force winds that were being created not only by the north wind, but by the fire itself. Hello, and thank you for joining me for episode 37 of the Aviation News Talk podcast for a Newsmakers edition, where we talk to people who are making the news. And there's So there you go. There's uh, just the very first few seconds of Max's uh, awesome podcast, Aviation News Talk. That's uh, mostly focused on general aviation. I highly recommend you uh, subscribe to it. Excellent. Way to go, Jan. Very nice. He's making his rounds around the uh, aviation podcast world, which is cool. All right. Uh, let's see. So that was all I had in that folder other than the plain tales, which we'll be playing here soon. Now let's head over to the, the uh, feedback folder, shall we? And uh, let's see. Not going to. You know what? I'm not even going to talk about the Boeing thing no. <laughs> I'm party no. thing. <laughs> right no. now it's a little bit politically it's, charged it's contentious. <laughs> yeah and, um, there's, a, there's a lot of uh feelings and emotions on um yeah more one side than the other from what i've heard at the moment so yeah <laughs> let's leave that yeah. just aside i think i think that's the best thing to do uh, so let's move over to Vico. Uh, he says, hey, APG crew, as it's prudent for Nordic people, I've been waiting for someone to bring it up, but it hasn't been done. Uh, so he sent me this link uh, to maritime-executive.com. And uh, he uh, put a link to this. Uh, well, I just sent that. Um, so we'll uh, talk about this uh, article here in a second. He said, basically, my question is, how it would affect aircraft and flight when you would suddenly find yourself in a whole different location by GPS compared to uh, the INS, the inertial navigation system and other sorcery you guys might be using. I'm a fairly new listener. I've been caught up or caught with the APG bug for more than 15 episodes now. And I fought the urge to become a patron for quite a few weeks now. So I must be going down hard with it. <laughs> awesome show. So uh, Vico from Estonia. He's in the chat room. Oh, awesome. Hey, Vico. Vico. Yay. All right. So here's the article, Mass GPS Spoofing Attack in Black Sea, question mark, and uh, an apparent mass and blatant GPS spoofing attack involving over 20 vessels in the Black Sea last month has navigation experts and maritime executives scratching their heads. The event first came to public notice via a relatively innocuous safety alert from the U.S. Maritime Administration. And here's the alert. A maritime incident has been reported in the Black Sea in the vicinity of position 4415.7 north, 3732.9 east on June 22nd, 2017 at 0710 GMT. This incident has not been confirmed. The nature of the incident is reported as GPS interference. Exercise caution when transiting this area. 
And it says, but the backstory is way more interesting and disturbing. On June 22nd, a vessel reported to the U.S. Coast Guard Navigation Center said GPS equipment unable to obtain GPS signal intermittently since nearing coast of, well, Novorossiysk, Novorossiysk, Russia. I don't know. Sounds, sounds uh, great. <laughs> thank you. Uh, now displays HDLP 0.8 accuracy within 100 meters, but given location is actually 25 nautical miles off. <laughs> wow. Yeah. After Just confirming, yeah. After confirming that there were no anomalies with GPS signals, space weather, or tests ongoing, the Coast Guard advised the master that GPS accuracy in his area should be three meters. <laughs> and advised him to check his software updates. The master replied, Thank you for your below answer. Nevertheless, I confirm my GPS equipment is fine. We run self-tests a few times and it's all working good. Anyway, I, I can confirm all ships in this area, more than 20, have the same problem. Uh, so anyway, it goes on talking about this, uh, this incident. And uh, yeah, you know, GPS can be spoofed. And that's I, that I think should be more of a concern uh, for more people because we are quickly transitioning in the aviation world to GPS only navigation. And, you know, we we need to really be careful with yeah. <laughs> getting, you know, too dependent upon the system uh, if it's easily spoofed. I don't know what you guys think. I mean, I guess until they figure out a more foolproof way to ensure that it's accurate, um, you know, block whatever those potential spoofs are or, or bugs or hacks or whatever you want to call it. Um, I guess there has to be a way to firm and back up your actual position. So might not be a bad idea to be cross-checking regularly. Mm-hmm. Well, our equipment does, uh, and uh, it, what it does is compare with the accuracy you're supposed to have with the accuracy you're receiving and gives you a confidence, uh, and uh, it says GPS accuracy is high, and then it'll give you the actual figures, uh, which is exactly what this guy would have had because he was saying that his GPS accuracy was indicating a, a very high level of accuracy, but he was actually, his physical position was 25 miles from where he believed he was. Now, on board the aircraft, if, if the aircraft goes, well, actually the signal I'm receiving is indicating perfectly accurately, it'll feed that position into the computers. Now, of course, we don't rely entirely on that. Uh, and pretty soon, you're going to start getting inertial uh, errors going, uh, I've got high inertial drift rates here that don't match. Um, and you'll obviously you'll get map shift because uh, you'll see your map physically move if the aircraft uh, suddenly thinks it's somewhere else. If you're paying attention to what's going on outside the world, you certainly will. Um, and hopefully air traffic will start to see the aircraft uh, trying to maneuver to uh, uh, regain a position where it's not really at. So it'll start drifting off its route or, or the airway if it's on an airway. So hopefully people will be smart enough to pick it up. But uh, you're right. If, it, if you're using uh, GPS-guided um, approach aids, then that starts becoming a real problem because you start maneuvering um, when you're actually on the approach and there are, you're in a high-density situation. It could be very dangerous. And, you know, I, I'm sure that uh, 
we are, uh, at least here in the U.S., you know, we've talked about on previous shows where they're, they put out a NOTAM regarding certain areas of the country within a certain, you know, ra- mile radius and various altitudes. If you're flying through this area, you know, be careful because they're doing this jamming uh, testing. So, you know, apparently we're, we're experimenting with that uh, technology. I'm sure everybody is, uh, at least all the major powers around the world. Um, and remember, we were talked about one of the uh, airplanes that uh, relies upon the GPS signals. And if it gets jammed or gets confused, the, the whole airplane can go out of control. <laughs> Forgot what airplane oh, that was. Now, it? Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Be careful out there, Pip. So what are you going to fly? One of those ones that goes out of control. <laughs> I don't know if it's that exact well, model that or not. One, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, yeah, just just keep track of her. Keep that VOR dialed up. And make sure. Um, anyway, yeah. So that that uh, that is definitely uh, concerning. And again, going back to uh, Vico's question, um, you know, what? How would it affect an aircraft in flight? Well, you got you basically just covered that, Nick. So I thought you did a pretty good job of that. So. Well, yeah, I mean, our aircraft uses a combination uh, of all the different navigation aids it gets. Uh, so it uses its inertial uh, position, it uses ground-based um, beacons, and it uses GPS, and it puts them into a melting pot and comes up with a an aircraft position. Now, if all of a sudden one of those systems starts trying to drag the aircraft away and builds up a very, very large area very quickly, I would hope the system's clever enough to alert us to it. Um, I don't know for sure because I've never actually seen, and I bet Airbus haven't really seen, a, a GPS signal that indicates it's perfectly serviceable and has a high degree of accuracy, but suddenly moves 25 miles. So uh, I'm not actually certain what would happen. Yeah, I don't know. And well, I love the comment in the chat room about uh, mad dogs don't have to worry about it because we use ducks that we they're always facing south in the winter oh, time i thought you went just get your ducks in a row geese well, geese ducks yeah or geese Some sort uh, of bird migratory yeah. birds <laughs> just look out for them uh, and you have a cat don't you because uh, cats always land on their feet so you just <laughs> toss it in the air and wherever it's feet we don't have point, a, that must be where the runway is we don't have an attitude indicator we just uh, take the okay get the cat yeah <laughs> yep still right side up all good yeah continue okay yeah. All right. Uh, Vico, hopefully uh, we did some justice to the uh, answering that question. Thank you for posing it and uh, making us aware of uh, that weird event with the GPS stuff. Um, Jules sent in a little piece of feedback. He sent a link to a video and, uh, you know, we've. I'm sure we've talked about this before on the show. It was, it was quite a, a while ago. It was the man show. I don't know how long that thing has been off the air but uh they did a little uh episode a little skit with uh, uh the two um primary uh stars of the show they were i forgot what their names are um they went to uh an airport and they were dressed as pilots and they were in the bar drinking and they were slurring their words and they were going through the airport falling over and it's a, it's a very funny skit um so thank you for that jules um john Want some help from Steph? Uh, yes. Can you ask Steph? Okay, here we go. How did you book your trip to Tokyo, Steph? See, uh, John is an av geek, and he's tried booking a round-the-world trip to Asia and can't figure out it out on AA.com. 
I'm going to Hong Kong in March and would love to go via Abu Dhabi and back the other way. Thanks, John. Okay, right, so here so we go. Sounds like John is trying to do kind of the reverse of what I did or opposite order. So go to um, Asia first and then back via Abu Dhabi, possibly Europe and back to the U.S. Sounds right. Mm -hmm. So the way I did mine, John, was all completely piecemeal at very different times. Once I knew when I was going to be where I needed or once I basically knew what days I was going to be where I was planning on being, if that makes sense. Um, and that had a lot to do with the fact that they started off as two separate trips and I was trying to coordinate different days with different people in different cities. So I didn't do it all on one airline. Um, do it all with one airline. It probably still needs to be piecemeal for, for some of those airlines where you just book basically a series of one-way um, tickets, which is how I did mine, and different airlines. So... Um, just to recap, what I did was I booked a, I booked with Turkish Airlines from Charlotte to Berlin. So it was actually a code share and I flew on an Air Canada flight to Toronto and then Turkish Airlines to Istanbul and then back to Berlin. And then I actually went to London for the evening so that I could take an Abu or take a um, Etihad flight to Abu Dhabi. So I flew with British Airways um, to London. Etihad to Abu Dhabi and stayed with them on to uh, Tokyo, Narita. That was all one uh, ticket that I booked, uh, just with two flight segments. And then um, my last flight was with, or well, at least my last booked flight was with American from Tokyo Haneda to LAX, then to Charlotte. So I booked all of them at completely different times. Some of those flights were booked months apart, um, just knowing when I was. Uh, knowing the dates on which I was going to be traveling finally. So hopefully that's helpful for you. Um, I know there are people who have done around the world flights just with one airline. I'm not actually entirely certain how you do that. So um, you may just want to call the airline. That's probably the easiest way to find out if they offer something along those lines because you may be able to do it on one booking ticket. Um, I don't know if that gives you any kind of discount if you do that or not. Um, but if you'd like to stay with one airline and you're trying to do it all as part of the same reference booking ticket, I, I would probably call them to find it out because I think the website is going to be a little bit limited um, in terms of helping you figure that out. So there you go. Very cool. Very helpful, hopefully, for hopefully. Uh, John. It, it may not be helpful at all. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's how but I did it. But a great thing to uh, have said you've done. This would be brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know what? It was it was actually very easy to do it that way because it made, like I said, I don't know if that gets you any kind of discount to stay with the same airline um, for the whole entire flight. Um, but the way I did, I was able to pick and choose and basically shop and compare prices. So uh, I think I actually got a pretty decent deal out of all of that flying. So Excellent. Excellent. Hey, speaking of um, helping us out with information, Ivan said... Uh, uh, I couldn't remember the like, the stars of that man show, Adam Carolla and Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, I think you're right. Those are the two comedians that were uh, doing that show. Uh, let's see. And Pip says he's been listening in the car. Just for the record, a loss of GPS in the Embraer 505 Phenom does cause some issues with yaw damper loss, but doesn't send the aircraft, quote, out of control. Well, you know, if you're a good pilot like Pip, of course not. But uh 
I do remember that when we talked about this, that there were some instances where they just about did lose control of the airplane. Apparently, maybe they reacted the wrong way or something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, thanks I'd still for be worried myself. Yeah, me too. Very worried. Yeah, especially if Pilot Pitt was flying it. Yeah, well, no, you know, we don't worry at all with <laughs> Pip at the controls. Uh, let's see. John uh, writes, this is an interesting one, I think. Uh, he said he's escaped from rehab and listening to episode 290. Hey, welcome back, John. Uh, talking about thrust reversers. Wait, wait. If you're, lis- if you're listening to the show, then uh, obviously he's uh, he's off the wagon or is, or is it back on the wagon? I can't I always off get the those. Horse, off the off horse? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. He's, he's off the wagon. He's fallen off the wagon. <laughs> fallen off the wagon. Off yeah. the wagon. <laughs> Darn it. Oh, well, we're here to help you, man. Uh, anyway, episode 290 talking about thrust reversers. I remember reading something about a B-17 pilot who backed his plane off the runway. No reversible pitch back then. Captain Nick? Oh, maybe he thinks that you flew the B-17, Captain Nick. <laughs> something oh, about Boeing, isn't it? <laughs> Give me a break. Yeah, no, he'd never fly a Boeing. Uh, something about dancing with full throttle and brakes. And I'm thinking, what? So I actually did a little bit of re- research on this. And uh, found this uh, from about seven years ago on airliners.net, their forum. And uh, this guy was talking about this particular thing. He says he recalls learning from a TV documentary that the B-17 could reverse in its own special way. The props were not reversible, but lock the left brake, increase thrust on the number one engine, and it could pivot around the locked wheel, moving the bulk of the aircraft rearward. Then lock the right wheel and power up the number four and repeat. So you could actually back the airplane up by manipulating the thing. Very clever. (laughs) That's very clever. Anyway, I'm thinking, oh, how how could that be? That's that's interesting. So there's your answer, John. Increase thrust, number one engine, lock the uh, left brake, and then you just kind of pivot backwards. Hmm. Pretty cool. Uh, let's see. And I think that's what, uh, Captain Nick does with the, uh, Airbus 340, 600. I, no, we've got reverses. Why, why oh, that's we right. Never mind. Yeah, yeah you don't exactly. Know. Yeah. <laughs> just like, just like those guys. What was that airline? Tui, T-U-I. Yeah, uh, that's right. Missed the turn off. Oops. <laughs> okay. Three point <laughs> turn on the runway. No, nobody's, no. nobody's going to notice. <laughs> yeah. Oops. That's how I, that's how I park my car all the time. <laughs> Whoops. A little bit. Little back up a little bit forward. Yeah. <laughs> uh let's see this is from sim captain stone aka peter kawali uh Juhazi? i don't know have no idea how to pronounce that name j-u-h-a with a little funny hat on it uh s-z anybody else want to try i can't find i can't find which peter, one you're peter talking Kowali, about Yuhaz, Yuhaz. I don't know. Yeah, it's a it's um, it's a very very descriptive um, note, uh, Nick. It says new message from airline pilot guy aviation podcast. Oh yeah, I've, I've just found it now. <laughs> I didn't have that's didn't fine. have a have a chance to clean all that up. Uh, anyway, he says first of all, thanks for the great show. It could be longer, really. That's what she said. <laughs> I am a sim captain for around two years now. I started with the Cessna 172, then learned more complex airplanes like the King Air C90B and 
other fun little planes like the DHC-2 Beaver, mostly general aviation. I like to fly low and slow. It's great for relaxing. Nowadays, I'm learning the 737-800. Go Boeing! Sorry, Nick. I like classic planes. Steam gauges are a plus. Through my learning process, a question arose. Why is it that general aviation people use complete, sometimes really long checklists, but in an airliner, you use flows and short checklists with uh, must-have items? The only answer I can think of is that you do this all day, and you don't, you don't need detailed checklists, do you? What if you miss something in the flow because someone disturbs you or, or something? Oh, and another, do I get it right that the flows can be different per airline for the same airplane? Could you enlighten me in this topic? Happy landings. Again, that's Sim Captain Stone. So, would you like to uh, attempt this, uh, Captain Nick? Because oh, I do. For sure. Yeah. Um, if you get disturbed in a checklist and you lose your place, um, or you've got to be distracted to do another duty, we restart the checklist because uh, the chances are that if you try and go back into it and pick up where you left off, you might miss. You might go one item on and might miss an essential item. I mean, you are quite right. Our checklists do tend to be the last chance checks, the essential checks, the absolutely uh, vital checks. But generally speaking, they're, they're, uh, most of the duties we do setting the aircraft up, um, they are, they're easy to pick up when you've missed something because uh, – if you haven't signed the logbook, the engineer will be shouting at you. If uh, you haven't um, put the data into the performance, there's nothing on the instruments. Most of them, you know, there'll be several cues and the aircraft. Certainly, uh, Captain Jeff won't have this facility, but our aircraft bleats at you if you probably, if you forget something vital. Um, so, uh, yep. That's the easy trick. Uh, the The checklists are designed to be short so that we can complete our duties promptly uh, and get the damn thing uh, going on the road. Um, and also long and involved checklists, uh, people do get bored reading them. And although it's not professional, people would then start skipping things or abbreviating things that don't need abbreviating. So, um, And particularly when you've got electronic checklists like a lot of ours are, um, as you complete actions, they get ticked off the electronic checklist. So we do have a paper checklist, but the second half of that is, for example, um, the before takeoff checklist uh, is um, all green. So it just shows that you've put everything in the right place because the aircraft can tell what switches and levers you've moved. And if they're required for a checklist, uh, as you move them, they'll, they'll tick themselves off uh, and you won't have to worry. And if something is in the wrong position, it comes up blue and you instantly uh, spot what it is and can fix it. So, uh, yeah, we, uh, we do fly regularly, but even on the long haul when we're only doing three, perhaps four trips a month and you're not doing those checklists quite as regularly as uh, someone like Jeff is, um, we uh, still, you know, uh, rely on our memory on a lot of uh, cases. But having said that, the airliners are well set up. For example, when I do my cockpit flow, Airbus have a system that is basically a lights-out system. So if you set the cockpit up, when you glance up at the top panel, the only lights will be showing all well, those uh, are on those systems that are temporarily active, and they're a different color to the normal ones. So, uh, for example, uh, the APU might be on. So you'll see the APU then will be in blue because it's temporary. Everything that's required to be turned on for the flight, for example, all the fuel pumps, which are normally in white when they're off, 
it'll be dark. So the idea is you look at you look around the cockpit and make sure that all the switches are dark, and then you know you turned everything on. And just so that you uh, know, we actually do have um, expanded checklists that are in our uh, flight manuals. That uh, that's how we learn how to do the checklist items in in detail. And then when we get into the airplane and we're actually you know flying it day in and day out, uh, because we've already been taught and, and studied exactly the exp- all the expanded items on these checklists that checklists that we actually have in the airplane are uh, what we would maybe consider an abbreviated version of the checklist and so if you ever want to go and figure out exactly what it means when your response is set then you go into the uh, volume what we call the volume one and look at the expanded procedure and see okay when you're saying set these are all the things you're supposed to be doing and checking for uh, but uh, t- if we ran a checklist, the expanded version for every flight, then we'd you know take an hour to <laughs> get, yep. get the airplane and going. I think that's a good point because the GA checklists do seem like there's a lot to them compared with an abbreviated or you know checklist that's based on different flows and cockpit flows and, and things like that. But they're really not that incredibly long on a GA aircraft. There's not that many things to check, and it does make sense to have all of those things there to make sure you've checked every item before you do whatever the next phase of flight is, whether it's taking off, uh, cruise, landing, you name it. So they're, they're yeah, really not that right. long. And it doesn't take that long to go through them, especially once you're familiar with it. Um, it's it's like, you know, it, I want to say it's the equivalent of, of doing what Jeff and Nick do day in and day out. But if you're flying regularly, you are familiar with it and it does not take very long to do those checklists. Uh, Lane Street in the uh, chat room uh, makes the good point that they're not a to-do list. They are literally a checklist. You 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 know by memory what to do, and you're merely checking the vital actions that are the safe ones you need to have done before you get airborne. So you're just doing the vital checks, really. <laughs> Ivan says, you put away the expanded checklist when the first officer doesn't need to be hit anymore. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That was him, not me. I didn't say that. Um, but uh, oh, the other thing is, uh, yes, uh, different airlines can have different flows. Although I've noticed in the last, you know, I've been doing this now for Acme for almost 29 years. I've noticed that uh, it used to be that uh, airlines would kind of tailor their own flows and their own checklists and their own manuals. Uh, they were allowed to do that. And then the FAA looks at it and goes, OK, you know, they. Uh, they they give you the uh, blessing for doing that. But I've noticed that in recent years, I'd say maybe the last couple of decades or at least decade and a half, uh, more and more airlines are now going, as Nick mentioned, with the the, the manufacturer's uh, checklist. Like, you know, everybody is pretty much doing the same exact checklist. So the air, all the Airbuses out there are pretty much following the, you know, the, the recommended checklists for their particular airplanes and same thing with the Boeing products and the McDonnell Douglas products. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, liability. So if something happens, there's a crash or incident, uh, the airline can say, well, that was Boeing's checklist, not ours. You know, we didn't do that. It was, you know, so uh, that anyway, that's what they that we've heard regarding um, tailored checklist items uh, for various airlines. But uh I guess it's still possible to have different flow patterns if you fly for a different airline, but they're accomplishing the same thing. All right. Well, you know what? I think this would be a good time for us to listen to this week's installment of Plain Tales. <laughs> <laughs> 
the old pilot's plane tails. The 49ers. Not every airline has an amicable relationship with their pilots. This three-part interview covers the longest industrial dispute in aviation history. I'd like to introduce to you a past president of the Hong Kong Air Crew Officers Association, Captain Nigel Demery. Good morning, Nigel. Thanks very much indeed for agreeing to talk with us. I wonder if you could start by giving us a brief resume of your flying career. Um, basically, I did 16 years in the military. That's the Royal Air Force. And uh, 20 years at Cathay. About three years at Korean at the end. So I quit exactly 40 years after uh, I joined the Air Force. Um, in the military, I, I was basically doing single-seat ground attack on Jaguars. Bit of training on Hawks and uh, finished up as a A2 QFI and QY. That's a qualified flying instructor and a qualified weapons instructor. And then went into uh, Cathay in Hong Kong. After leaving the uh, Royal Air Force, what attracted you to Cathay Pacific? I'd made a relatively early decision with my wife that we were going to transition to the airlines. Never been further east in the world than Cyprus with the military, so we were actually quite attracted to going out to Asia and having a good time there. And so Cathay was a good airline. It was it was quite a, a well-worn path of guys leaving the military and going out to Cathay, so it wasn't an unknown quantity, although Hong Kong was brand new, and it was basically attractive to a youngish guy. Yeah, I don't blame you. So uh, was it tough getting in, and what kind of pilots were generally uh, being recruited by Cathay? In those days, it was 40% Brits, 40% Aussies, and 20% other colonials. Cathay didn't recruit from America or Canada in those days. A few guys from South Africa... You needed to be a certain type of person to want to go and work in Hong Kong and, you know, on the edge of China. They certainly had uh, more than enough applicants for the few jobs. When I got there, I was about number 674, so it was a relatively small airline, and they had more than enough applicants to get in. So you had to be experienced, self-sufficient to even get through the, the door with them, let alone get to the interview with them. What was life like in Hong Kong on your original contract? It's brilliant. If you're a pilot, basically you want to fly for free, <laughs> you do it. And as many, um, you know, Ryanair and what have you, capitalising on that desire. So to actually go to a job where we had to do was straight in approach rather than shooting things down. You just do a straight in approach and land as softly as you could. Uh, and get paid telegraph numbers for doing it rather than RAF pay. Uh, it was brilliant. And Asia was fantastic. Um, my wife was, the social life was good. It was great. Um, brought the kids up. It was just great to start off with. Fantastic, actually. What sort of perks were there in your country? You used to get a lot of fancy allowances, didn't you? Well, the difference between Cathay and, say, British Airways, which was the other sort of direct comparison... Um, was you needed to attract people to come out to Hong Kong. And I'm now sitting in England and, you know, uh, we're used to certain things like a uh, reasonably large house, a garden, space, schooling is f sort of free to the average Brit. Um, and 
it's not like that in Hong Kong. So everything costs money, everything's cramped. And so to attract people to come from the wide open spaces of Australia or from leafy uh, England, you needed to make sure they could uh, live in a decent house or they just wouldn't come. You know, they needed good education for the kids or they wouldn't come. So uh, Cathay had to bring in foreign pilots, although it's a colony then, it weren't, they weren't really foreigners. Well, I suppose the Australians were. Um, but they had to bring in, attract people to come. So you had to pay for it. Benefits. What happened to change things? Well, like airlines... I mean, Cathay was a premium airline, like some of the other airlines, like Pan Am, you know, they were top notch. It was a premium airline, but competition. And um, management basically had to restructure and uh, cut some of their costs because uh, profits were falling. And managements around the world, you know, from Frank Lorenzo onwards and what have you, they'd been restructuring and cutting and cutting and cutting, trying to make more profit because that's the objective of one of the objectives of a business is to make profit. So basically in... 93, they introduced B-scales for the pilots. So it was about a 40% less than I was paid. And looked they were on a new contract. Still guys were coming through the door to it. So then the next target after they'd introduced the B-scales was obviously the following year. They went for us, the existing pilots, on our A-scales, fat cap salaries as they looked at it. So um, you were basically doing the same jobs uh, as other pilots, but they were being employed on a much lower salary. Wasn't that a bit divisive? Yeah, it was. But of course, you know, it started off with us and their minority. Um, they, they were still getting first class people walking through the door prepared to work for less money. But obviously over time, and it was only a matter of time before B scales were replaced with C scales and C scales with F scales. And I missed a couple out there deliberately, F for freighters. But um, divisive not amongst the pilots, because pilots tend to be pretty uh, cohesive bunch anyway. Um, but it, it did, uh, we could see the writing on the wall. Um, so we had a, a bit of a shindig in 94 where they offered us new contracts and what have you as soon as we signed that the ink was barely dry on the contract and then uh, oh well we're changing your benefits and so the focus then became on what was contractual what wasn't uh, in 96 they said oh we're now hiving off the freight operation um, so all the freight's going to be done by uh, other pilots on different contracts and that definitely created a bit of a stir then in 98, we got the Asian financial crisis, which hit all of the airlines, actually, but mainly, obviously, in Asia. And so that gave them an excuse to say, well, yeah, I know four years ago we uh, put you on new contracts, but we just want you to have another look at another contract. And it was a continual steamroller effect. This steamroller was advancing towards us as a pilot group. And it, it was coming. It was just how much you could try and slow it down in the process. What inspired you to get involved with the Cathay Pilots Union? I, it's called the Hong Kong Aircrew Officers Association. Um, well, being ex-military and brought up in the 70s, for anyone that knew, I was 
sort of uh, pretty anti-union, to be honest. Um, Scargill was the miners' leader. We had all the stuff going on in Fleet Streets. They seemed to be running battles every day. So I was sort of actually anti-unions. However, when you're in with a bunch of blokes who are all facing the same thing, you've got this uh, sort of collegiate group thing. And there are a lot of people working hard for me to improve my benefits. And so I, I offered to assist in the background in 94 and just offered to help out on the stuff in 94. And it slowly progressed from there. How did the Ecru Officers Association, uh, the AOA, their relationship with the Cathay management develop? Well, I remember being in a coffee bar up in Lossmouth in Scotland, still in the military, and they were talking about this sort of thing. And um, they said, oh, the AOA has instituted a woe campaign, WOE, withdrawal of enthusiasm. So we had a bit of a laugh about that. And when when I got to Cathay just a couple of years later, it was always a very friendly, um, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type relationship. The director of flight operations, DFO, his name was Mike Hardy. He was an ex-group captain from the Air Force. You know, the, 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 it was friendly. And um, people would ask for this and there'd be a bit of a... Huff and puff, and well, yes, all right, and we'll do this. And but it was uh, everyone was still after the same goal. Like you know, we want to fly airplanes. You want to pay us money. We want to shift our passengers. You know, we're after the same thing. But so ninety four was a bit of a shock, to be honest, to the pilots. This was a bit too much in your face, and so it was still very polite in 95 but it just deteriorated in 96 um, and it just progressively became more reactionary you know what are you after this time well okay and what could we do about it so over two years uh, it, it deteriorated into an us and them rather than we're all in this together type thing it went from the happy family definitely to us and them didn't uh, you get fired at one point <laughs> well, I, personally, I consider I got fired three times. Uh, I think you're referring to uh, 96 when, as a captain, I was uh, deemed, uh, what do they say? Uh, you have unnecessarily delayed Cathay 508 on the 18th of April, therefore you're fired. <laughs> Um, that was because I had become involved in the freight thing. I was now on the general committee. And um, and one of the things that I've been tasked to do by my president, who's a great bloke, John Warham, um, was to do an analysis of why do they want to outsource the freight pilots. And I got pretty close with my numbers, but we had to ask some difficult questions of management. They used to do management pilot briefings. Uh, you'd have about 50 or 60 people in the room. And I um, must admit, with the benefit of hindsight, I did get stuck into the managing director and the director of flight operations. I've got it all on tape somewhere. And uh, they definitely didn't like me after that. And I think the rumor at the time was, uh, next time Demery puts his head above the parapet, blow it off. And hey, presto, when I had a technical issue... Um, which, by the way, the CAD, Civil Aviation Department in Hong Kong, backed me on. Um, they just said, no, you're replaced, you're fired. And 
Um, that was it. So I was actually gone for about three weeks, but my president got me back because he proved Cathay wrong and used very good tactics, by the way. Another story, another time. But yeah, I got fired then. We all got fired in 99. We were all given three months' notice to uh, sign the new uh, contract in 99, or 98 probably. Um, and then in 2009, at the age of 55, I was retired. I was the last guy to go at 55. And someone who was born the same day as me, he's still working as far as I know. What sort of protections did Cathay Pilots get from uh, Hong Kong employment law? Well... I think it was in the late 40s or early 50s, the United Nations came up with International Labour Organization and started saying that, oh no, actually, I think it started after the uh, First World War, they started trying to introduce protections for workers in the workplace on an international level. And some stage International Labour Organization was born and it came out with basic freedoms of association, freedoms to join a union, um, no discrimination to bargain collectively. So in 96, it, it was still a British colony in Hong Kong, we had the basics there and they had just brought in collective bargaining as one of the latest um, advances on these international rights. However, um, as soon as Chinese sovereignty took over in 97, the collective bargaining and some of the other things were repealed by the new government. So we had the basics, uh, but nothing like uh, we have in other civilised societies. So let's go back to the period of the major industrial action that occurred. Um, and by this time, you were pretty senior in the AOA. In fact, uh, one point, uh, well, you can describe to us when you became the president. So um, what was the uh, kind of environment that led to uh, the, the industrial action that you brought about? And what was the final straw that caused that? Um, question is, what is industrial action? Um it sounds like going to war and strikes and what have you, and pilots don't really like to go on strike. Um, and in fact, in '96, the then director of flight operations, Jerry Clemo, he put out this newsletter with two words across the top, industrial action. And it's basically because we'd said, well, we're not going to work on our days off. Don't ring us up on our days off. And he was trying to intimidate us and use word pictures against us, industrial action. Funnily enough, um, 15 years later, the uh, Court of Final Appeal in Hong Kong actually said, yes, uh, refusing to go to work on your day off is industrial action, and therefore, if you choose not to go to work, you are protected by employment law. <laughs> so uh, it sort of came around full circle. Um, so we entered into this phase in the late 90s where we were on what we call contract compliance, which is just working in accordance with your contract, nothing else, not volunteering to do stuff that you didn't have to do. And when there was something in the contract that said, you know, you've got to leave, if you're on standby, you have to leave the house in 45 minutes. We left the house in 45 minutes. The rules then didn't say how quickly you had to get to work. So <laughs> it might, and Hong Kong's not a very big place, but some guys, you know, they'd walk to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when when you're trying to uh, use what few tools you have to stop this steamroller advancing, um, and basically 
after the Asian financial crisis, they told us, well, yeah, we're fighting for survival now. Uh, you know, we've just made a loss of money. And uh, so we got to give you a new contract, new pay cuts and what have you. So we went into this thing and we did that. And then as they made a 70 million US dollar loss in 98, got the new contracts in. And then, hey, presto, in 99, $280 million profit. You know, is it, they didn't save $280 million off the pilot's pay. It's just, uh, sure, you have a financial crisis, you're going to have a bad year. But they brought in all this stuff. And then in 2000, another year later, they made $650 million profit. So the pilots, I'm now getting a pay cut. It was a staged pay cut over three years. So in 2000, I'm expected to take another pay cut, whereas their profits are increasing. So people have got fed up with the lies, or perceived lies. Um, and the other big trouble was the scheduling practices, rostering, whatever you want to call it. That's always, the um, people call it lifestyle, but actually your roster is fundamental to a pilot. If you're going away and yeah, let's say it's Christmas carol time and you want to see your little girls singing in the Christmas carols, you want to know what you're doing on the 17th of December and you need to know whether you're going to make it or not or you've got to make your excuses to the wife and uh, kids early. So the schedule is very important to a pilot and they kept changing the schedules. It, the roster disruption was phenomenal. You know, one guy uh, um, went to work with a clean shirt expecting to go to Manila for a day turnaround and he did a five-day Los Angeles trip. You know, it's just not possible to run your life. So the pilots got fed up with the poor scheduling. So that and the the pay cuts and what have you meant that in the end we'd had enough. We tried to negotiate with the management to rectify all this, but in the end we had a vote. I'm, I was now the president. Um, we had a vote when 96% of... Uh, uh, the union voted for limited industrial action. It just got to a point where, okay, we're going to do more than contract compliance now. We're going to do the next stage. The next part of this fascinating yet sometimes tragic story will come next week. Music by bensounds.com. Wow, fascinating. Yeah, it gets, it gets quite traumatic towards the end uh, so I'm just kind of uh, leading into that with this uh, this plain tale it's a long one um, what is interesting is that uh, this particular airline is about to enter industrial action again some 15-16 uh, years after this all finished um, so uh, uh, they're now asking um, Nigel who uh, retired some time ago to remind them what it was like and how bad it got and what happened so that uh, to sort of arm them for what might occur the next time around. And this interview is actually being sent over to Hong Kong to um, to be played to the Cathay Pilots, I gather, or made available to them anyway. Oh, wow. That's Well, it's always good to have a sense of history, you know, and, and uh, that helps in the future negotiations, right? Oh, oh, yeah, sure. absolutely. Very cool. Awesome. All right. Well, I look forward to parts, what do you say, two and three? Yep. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Steph, uh, you were looking mm. through the feedback and you thought uh, there might be something in there that um, you might like to take a Well, there was one that, was, that caught my attention because it is directed to me. <laughs> so I'll take this one. Uh, there, This one is from Derek. How do you think you pronounce his last name? 
Wysong? Wysong? Did he, has he told you in the past? Uh, I, I would say Wysong, but I'm not Wysong? sure. I think yeah. so too. If we're wrong about that, you can let us know. Um, so Derek starts by saying, um, I'll start by saying thank you. Thank you, Captains Jeff, Dana, and Nick. Thank you, Dr. Steph. Thank you, community members whose feedback has been hilarious and or inspirational. Thank you for the time and effort you all spend on the podcast. I am writing this feedback to express to you all how grateful I am to have found the APG show and community. Last week, uh, October 5th, 2017 to be exact, so two weeks ago, um, I received my temporary airman certificate after completing the private pilot checkride. Congratulations, Derek. Uh, the APG show was an important piece of my study plan. So seriously, it was uh, when my motivation would wane after flightless weeks due to foul weather, equipment maintenance or CFI availability issues. The APG show would give me that hit of motivation, which kept me focused. Mildly amusing story. I thought for a moment during the checkride that I might need to execute a go around after rolling out on final well beyond the center line for a forward slip to soft field landing. I'm pretty sure that at that, that moment, I barely audibly recited the jingle. You can always go around over the intercom, despite intending it to be an internal monologue. However, it wasn't as bad as I thought, and I got back on center line quickly. Dr. Dr. Steph especially, uh, I have a question. I'm a skydiver, and I've got in the ballpark of 550 jumps, mostly from the Twin Otters at my favorite New York Hudson Valley drop zone. I'm starting instrument instrument training and plan to do commercial and multi afterwards. I'm pretty interested in flying jumpers occasionally for extra experience and perhaps fun. I'm curious if you've ever done that, and if so, how did you like it? I think it'd be a blast to deliver my friends to altitude and then race down for the short field landing at our private strip. It seems to seems like it would build some good skills and keep me or keep me around two activities that I love. Also, how was how has flying airplanes influenced your canopy piloting? For me, it has made me much more cognizant of the pre-exit traffic scan. Uh, thanks a lot, and I hope one day. Uh, to meet you all at a New York meetup so that I can thank you personally. Until then, thanks again and blue skies, Derek. So first of all, huge congratulations, Derek. Congratulations on passing your uh, private pilot check ride. <laughs> I think Jeff meant to play something <laughs> different. Yeah. No, I, I meant to do that. <laughs> uh-huh. Sorry. You can start at that place if you want. <laughs> That sentence. Uh, that sentence again. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll repeat myself. I'm uh, sorry. So, Derek. <laughs> First of all, Derek, I assure you that if you're hearing Jeff laughing in the background, it is not because of anything you just I just read in your feedback. But we did want to say a huge congratulations on passing your private pilot check ride. Welcome to the club there. And um, yeah, looking forward to hearing your um, progress as you go through your instrument rating, uh, uh, commercial and multi-engine as well. So um, with regards to flying skydivers, um, I have gone along to, to ride along flying skydivers a couple times with my local drop zone as well here in South Carolina. Um, that mostly came about because I was temporarily grounded from jumping. And in exchange for letting them uh, potentially rent my uh, gear to other skydivers, uh, I had the opportunity to ride along with them, um, both in the caravan and the um, King Air. So that was fun and a lot of good experience for the the times that I did that. Um, actually, got a lot, a, a decent amount of uh, hands-on flying in the caravan. So that was that was great. Um, for me, I was, I was 
really interested in that. It was kind of a combination of um, using all of those different experiences. Um, not only, you know, basic, uh, I mean, it's all hand flow and stuff, but towards the end as you're actually um, getting ready to uh, actually drop the skydivers and, and let them get out of the airplane, it's a lot more like um, instrument flying in that you're trying to line up over a very specific target. You're trying to be um, on target speed, on target altitude, on a specific heading. Um, and you really want to be very accurate at that. Um, so that when the, the door opens in the back of the aircraft and the skydivers are spotting and, you know, doing that pre-exit traffic scan that you talked about, um, that they're in the right position to be able to do that. And you've accounted for, uh, upper level winds and, and everything else. Um, I'm not sure where your drop zone is, but ours is actually located within the, um, class B of Charlotte. So there's actually uh, communication and coordination that goes on with air traffic control in Charlotte, approach control. Um, so we, that's another factor that we have to take into account there. Um, it was a ton of fun. I'd actually like to do it more often. Uh, my day job kind of gets in the way of me. Um, but hopefully in the future, that's something I can get back into because it's it really is a lot of fun um, in terms of uh, experience, I, you know, it was great experience, different type of flying than I think most people do regularly because it's just, it, it's short trips. You're just going up to altitude and then back down. And it really is a race back down to the ground. Uh, many times you're landing. I mean, you, I'm sure Derek knows this, but you're landing before, uh, some of the skydivers actually make it back to the ground, especially the tandem, uh, jumpers. So that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, and yeah, it's it's a great way to build build hand flying skills and keep you involved in those two activities. Um, has it influenced my canopy piloting? So he's talking about um, when I'm actually skydiving in terms of how you control the canopy um, after you've deployed your parachute. So canopy flying, um, especially coming into land, is exactly like landing in an aircraft. In most cases, you're going to plan a downwind, a base, and a final leg into the wind. Um, if anything, I think skydiving has probably influenced my flying more than the other way around because there's not too many instances of flying where you're up in the air with, you know, 15 other potential targets all with you at the same, in the same place. So I think you develop a lot more of that head on a swivel um, ability when you're skydiving because you really, really, really need to know where you're, where you're fellow skydivers are because they're your traffic. Um, you do that to, to, to a fair extent, certainly with flying and general aviation flying and, and anything else. Um, but it's a lot more tight quarters there. So it just makes you a lot more aware of what's going on. So, but hopefully you get a chance to do it. It's a lot of fun. I highly recommend it. Um, it is different and it takes a little bit of getting used to and certainly some training. So enjoy. Awesome. And congratulations, yes, on the uh, on the check ride. Oh, most certainly. Well done. Well done. Uh oh. Ivor sent us some feedback. Dearest aviation piloting gentlemen and ladies, would you be so kind and pass on my profound apologies to the young whippersnappers at the Plain Talking UK podcast? My guilt emanates from my inability to join in with the general jollity on the live chat room. This is not because I believe that they are too common for me to associate with, although it does worry me. The main problem is the fact that I'm performing duties of national importance. Whilst these young fellows are entertaining the general public, 
So if you would be so kind and pass on my deeply felt sadness at not being able to join in the fun with all the nice viewers and listeners, I do subscribe to the audio podcast, but alas, it's not quite the same. So if you would pass on my best regards to Matt, Nev, and TriStar Boy, it would be most appreciated. Love and kisses from Ivor McDonald. (laughs) I wonder where he works then. I don't know, but I'm intrigued. Yes. He probably he probably could tell us. GCH. But then he'd have to kill us. Is it part of the spy um, empire? I don't know. What is that? What do you guys call those like M5, M6 and that kind of stuff? Uh, MI5. And MI, MI6. that's it. I knew it it's didn't sound. Military yeah. intelligence it stood for. Ah, very good. But GCHQ is where we spy on people from. That's the electronic gathering place. Oh, you don't do that. Mm. Come on. They don't. Mm. Okay. They probably do. Yeah. Uh, you know, we talked about um, your 20 tons of arrival fuel on your arrival into Atlanta a couple weeks ago, Captain Nick. And then I said, you know, I don't even know if we can hold that much fuel. And I was right. And uh, Mike, dispatcher Mike, sent us in some feedback to uh, kind of elaborate a bit. Hello, Captain Jeff, APG crew and community. This is dispatcher Mike sending some feedback. Based off what Captain Nick said in episode 293 with landing in Atlanta with uh, 20 tons of fuel on his aircraft. And all that was because of Tropical Storm Nate that was pushing through the Atlanta area at the same time. And I kind of want to put that in perspective because there seemed to be, you know, just a little bit of confusion about how much was 20 tons of fuel. So I I did some number crunching and I'd like to share those with you. One, uh, Captain Jeff was pretty close on his math. Uh, One metric ton of fuel is about 2,204 pounds. Uh, Pounds is what we use in the United States to measure fuel in airlines. Obviously, metric tons and kilograms are what the rest of the world uses. So the 20 tons of fuel that he landed with is 44,092.5 pounds of fuel, or basically 44.1 is what we'd call it. Um, this is also going to amuse Captain uh, Nick a little bit here too. So the maximum amount of fuel that we can put on an MD-88 or MD-90 is 39,128 pounds. And that's based on a standard fuel density of 6.7 pounds. And what a fuel density is, is just how much one gallon weighs. So it, the average standard uh weight of one gallon of jet fuel is 6.7 pounds. So uh, he easily could have filled up an MD-88 on that. And then when you look at something bigger, uh, maximum amount of fuel on a 737-800 is uh, 46,063 pounds. Again, using standard density. Uh, And you get up to the bigger airplanes, the 7 uh, the 7.5, I think, is up in the 76,000 range. So, uh, obviously, bigger airplane holds more fuel, goes farther. So, kind of amusing there that the fuel on arrival could have filled up uh, in MD-88 easily. Now, the average fuel load on the average MD-88 flight is anywhere between 12,000 pounds and twenty to 25,000 pounds. So you're talking anywhere between 5 and 10 tons of fuel for the average total mission block fuel on an MD-88. So now that's talking about a pounds and all that, and that's just, that 
that really doesn't jive to the normal people. I mean, we don't measure fuel for our car in in pounds or in metric in metric tons or kilograms. We use a unit of volume. So let's break this in the volume. To do this, you have to take the uh the pounds, the forty four thousand ninety two pounds, and you have to divide it by that standard density of six point seven. So Captain Nick landed with six thousand five hundred and eighty gallons of fuel on his A three forty when he got here into Atlanta. And for all of you metric people, that's twenty four thousand nine hundred and eight liters of fuel that was on the airplane uh when he touched down in Atlanta. And finally, when you break it down further into the general aviation world, that could fill my beach mustard tier 109 times. So lots of gas on board. Um, you know, in the end, is the fuel, was, was it needed? No. But was it good that he had it on there just in case the crosswinds were a little bit squirrely, just in case there was wind shear in Atlanta? A lot of unknowns when you're traveling four to 5,000 miles across the world, 10 hours, uh, eight to 10 hour flight uh, coming across. So just wanted to take that little bit of a nugget of 20 tons of fuel and kind of put it in perspective for everybody. So have a good one, everyone. Thanks, Mike. And uh, what I need to know is how many teaspoons would that be? Yeah, that'd be good a lot, I bet. Um, what do you say? 6,000 something gallons of fuel? I forget the exact like number. Again. Yeah. Like that. Wow. What's like a typical uh, swimming pool is like 20,000 gallons. I was just referencing it to like how much my car holds. Which oh, is like, not 20,000. You know, no, I don't even <laughs> think it's 20 gallons. It might be. I mean, it's 21 gallons. I forget. Yeah. Not a lot. So. Well, thank you, uh, Dispatcher Mike, for all that detailed information about uh, yeah, fuel. Yeah, that number crunching. Very good job. Yeah, and it looks like um, the. I think I looked this up uh, after I received Mike's feedback regarding the total fuel capacity of the Airbus A340-600, and it's something about 205,000 pounds, whatever that works out, about 102-plus metric tons uh, think, or something. I think 600 is about 108 uh, tons, somewhere in there. Okay. Yeah, and then I think the uh, I looked up the seven forty seven dash eight. I think is up around uh, 230,000 pounds, whatever that would be. So th- those airplanes, uh, you know, as you said, you need the fuel to get you know those long distances, and uh, when, especially when you're flying an airplane with four engines, you know, you're, you're burning a lot of fuel. Yeah, we're gobbling it up at an average of about nine tons an hour when we're in the cruise, let alone on takeoff, which is considerably more. Yeah. Wow. All right. So going back to those uh, biofuels. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that'd, be a lot of, that'd be a lot of chip shops making uh, fat for that, wouldn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Don't you feel bad about all those CO2 emissions? Uh Yeah. I do, actually. But what I would say is that um, our engines are so damned efficient nowadays and get even more efficient that uh, that goes an awful long way, that fuel, compared with what it would have done 10 or 20 years ago. That's about all I can say. And as aircraft get lighter, I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm not at all sad to see the 747 
die uh, in the same way that the A340-600 will die uh, is because uh, they're, they're not at all green. They, they chew through the fuel like it's going out of fashion. I mean, a, a classic used to chew it at about 12 tons an hour as opposed to my nine tons an hour. Um, so, um, you know, uh, when we get rid of those airplanes and we're all flying plastic airplanes around that burn a fraction of that, uh, we'll be, uh, you know, contributing a lot less towards uh, destroying the atmosphere. So true. So true. We'll be going green, in fact. We're going green. We're going green. We're going to take care of the earth. We're going green. All right. So uh, that about does it for today's show. Um, thank you all for sending in your feedback. Hopefully we'll, we did it justice, uh, answering your questions. And let's see, if you want to learn more about uh, the show, you can head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com where you'll find information about the crew and the community, uh, the coffee fund, merchandise, and more. And again, that's AirlinePilotGuy.com. And we have a couple apps, uh, or actually one app uh, that's available on both iOS and Android devices. The, uh, of course, you go to the uh, Apple App Store for the iOS stuff and the Google Play Store for the Airline Pilot Guy app on that platform. And it's free, no advertising, and it's a great way to keep track of, oh, you know, I just realized I didn't send out a push notification for today's show. Normally, oh, it doesn't work anyway. <laughs> oh, it doesn't. Yeah. Well, it's kind of how ha- it's Our working for some working. people. Yeah. It, it, I don't know. I can't understand what's going on with it because yeah. I never get my own push notification. But it seems like go, some go people get the are. app anyway. Go get the yeah. app anyway. Yeah. It's, it's still There's useful. Really no downside. Yeah. So yeah. it just takes up a little tiny bit of space on your smartphone. And it's free. And it's free. Did I mention it's that? free. Yeah, no ads. We like free things. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, just in case you don't get that push notification, you should really follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Steph? Twitter, uh, using the handle at APG Crew. You can find us all there. As Jeff said, usually there's a notification, usually somewhat in advance of our live shows, sometimes last minute notice, but either way, there will be some notice there. Um, you can find all of our individual Twitter handles pinned to the top of that uh, page. Uh, you can go to Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Uh, lots of good stuff posted there. Um, we have community members posting articles of interest, topics and questions of interest. Uh, mostly Nick posting interesting things there as well related to our endeavors. Um, you may find the announcement about the show there as well. Sometimes if you're lucky. Um I think that sums it up for social media. Wow. <laughs> I know. <right? laughs> Super complimentary. <laughs> Love you too. <laughs> All right. Hey, hello. Hello. Okay, hang on. Let me move out of the way. He's going to take over the microphone here. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, man. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think you need to improve your. Uh, your I'm not. I'm not good at impressions. Yes, you're not. You're not a very ventriloquist. You know. 
<laughs> I try. <laughs> Stick to your day job, Jeff. Okay. <laughs> and uh, again, uh, if you see one of those notifications before we do a show, we do this every week. We do it live. There's a live chat room with all kinds of fun and frivolity there. And uh, you should join them because I think you'll have a blast. Again, uh, just follow us on the social medias and uh, get those apps and perhaps maybe you'll be one of the lucky ones that gets the push notification and uh, join us and you know you could do it at work you could just pretend like you're doing work you know and then it looks like somebody's coming behind your uh, back and you just kind of swipe to something else you know make it look like you're doing a it's spreadsheet just an important webinar that you had to yes. attend very very important and just try not to laugh out loud when uh, you're uh, amongst other people at work and uh, I guess that's about it yeah, I guess we should say, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Sayonara. Good day. a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, I guy I fly Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I guy I fly expressed on the Airline Pilot Guy podcast may not represent the views, opinions, or policies of any airline, real or fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. It ain't Boeing, I ain't going.